go to thecognitiverampage.com. Keep viewing the change. Help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support. Love you. The Cognitive Rampage, a scientific approach to self-discovery, change, and life optimization, is now available on Amazon. What I do in the book is I fuse the latest research from the cognitive, behavioral, social, environmental, and biological sciences. It's not just motivational fluff and wordplay. Now, I do talk about my own story, so there's some kind of inspiration in there, but I'm not just spinning words and hyping you up with motivational fluff. Whether you need a life change, simply enjoy self-exploration and optimization, want to discover new hidden passions, or reduce the life-altering effects of toil, anxiety, depression, all of those issues, this book is for you. This book is not a cookie-cutter method of steps to follow. You'll customize the scientific framework with your own personal beliefs to build your authentic change. That way you assimilate it faster. It's not just copying my beliefs and telling you step one, step two. These will come from your beliefs as how you extend and build the foundation upon this framework. You'll use this framework throughout your whole life, through every change, and through every age. These are not empty words of motivational spin. This book is an experience. The Cognitive Rampage is based in science and is built from your beliefs. It's a path to help you unleash your desired change. You can apply this method on your own with no harmful side effects. And welcome to the Cognitive Rampage podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage, well, the best you can uh, as far as your uh, brain will let you do such uh, and we're not fooling ourselves. Um, what's up, Tony Wright? Welcome back to the show, man. I, I'm so full of your information right now that it's almost like it's pouring out of me already, man. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Yeah, good to, good to chat again. And uh, yeah, I know how you feel. It's been like that for about 20 odd years. <laughs> Just a head full of stuff. It won't go away. I, I can't imagine being in your mind for even a day, much less the 20 years you have been developing, uh, frankly, w what I call a, in my mind, because, well, if people know your theory, they would know why my mind has a hard time processing your theory and, and would call it one of the most complicated theories, maybe not to understand, but more or less to even allow my brain to comprehend to a sense, because I think you said it on the last podcast, all I have to study the brain is the brain that I have. Well, that's always part of the equation, whoever's doing the research. And I think sometimes we forget about that. You know, we read journals or papers or articles, and really that's what we're doing. It's it's a human brain studying the human brain. So it's uh, that element of it interests, in, you know, has intrigued me for a long time. But, uh, you know, your point about it being complicated, I think that may be partly down to me. Um, I'm hoping as time goes on, it's gonna get more simple um in fact you know that's that, that's part of what i want to cover tonight really that despite my best efforts i'm i'm beginning to get you know feedback from people who are starting to see how the bits join and really that's all it is it's it's just context it's not i don't honestly believe it's that complicated it's just trying to arrange the pieces so they fit and that's obviously been the journey i've been on for a, a good few years so you know i'm hoping this progress i'm hoping it's getting easier to see but uh when people do see the bits and how they join it's like oh my god you know they were there all the time yeah it's uh when, when you step back you know I've, I've often said that with so many specialists in so many fields that they get so pigeonholed into their speciality <laughs> 
that rarely do they back up and look at other pieces at play, right? You know, uh, if, if my tool's a hammer, everything's a nail, to quote Maslow uh, roughly. So uh, I've often said, even when I wrote my book, man, I uh, just in the basic form of psychology, I was looking at behavioralists, cognitive practitioners, all these different practitioners, and not many were really, they may call themselves integrative, but not many were going, hey, it's a, it could be a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, and all of that together. And, you know, my book was just that in one area (laughs) and I'm talking, Mm. you know, behavior, psychology, et cetera. You've taken all of these different fields, just psychology and um, neuroscience, uh, biology. You've taken all of these and kind of pulled pieces of all of these theories and, and have kind of brought them together and. From the last time you were sharing your theory, uh, uh, maybe a, a year or two, two years ago, something like that on the podcast, you certainly have put more pieces in, in place, if you will, or in the right place, uh, so much to where that cognitive dissonance of mine starts to set in where I'm going, no, it, it, it can't be, no. <laughs> well, I, I think that's part of the journey. It's 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 a bit... You know, I've used this analogy before, and I, I liken it to those kind of 20, 30 years ago, whatever, those magic eye posters, you know, that were all the rage, and you stick them on the wall, and you look at them for a while, and you see nothing, then eventually, just out of nowhere, there's a whole kind of image comes out. And of course, the image was always there. It's just you weren't looking at it the right way, and that's kind of how I see it, you know, and um, with the whole reductionist approach to things, which obviously I think is a symptom of the very condition I'm talking about. So there's lots of loops in this, you know, again, it's back to what you said earlier, it's the brain studying the brain and trying to trying to sort of solve that chicken and egg thing. So what do we look at? Do we look at our ability to look at the brain or we just look at the brain? You know, it's kind of, so it's trying to feed into that loop somehow. And I think it is, I think it is possible. Um, but I think you've got to step back, like you're saying, and start looking as best you can at the relatively objective data, never mind anybody else's conclusions, never mind my conclusions. Just look at the data as if you've looked at it for the very first time. We don't have a theory for this. We don't have an idea for that. And then see how they might fit together. And that's a much more, I think, worthwhile approach because otherwise we're taking lots of detailed but reductionist ideas where people have drilled really deep down into stuff, something I wouldn't want to do. And they become experts in that language. And it all sounds very impressive. But then, like you say, they've never spoken to their, you know, if they're a neurologist, they've never spoken to their colleagues in anthropology or primatology or, or uh, pharmacology or whatever. It's, it's, it's all these separate little pieces. And we've grown up with that. In fact, I, I think we, we always start off with a reductionist reference, even if we're going to talk context or integration. We're still using those very same principles to try. And, it's almost like a reductionist version of integration kind of thing. And it's difficult to see that until you you really got to step back, you know. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, that, that's how I would say. It, 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 you know, it, there's nothing new here. I don't think I've discovered anything new. I've just tried to make more coherent sense of more of the pieces because, without wanting to sound arrogant, you know, a, a theory of human origins, a really good theory, has got to explain everything. Now, I'm way, way not claiming that, um, but I'm I'm trying to suggest that if you can't if you can't kind of put the main pieces together that we we know are somewhere important, if they don't join reasonably easy, if you've got to start hammering them to get them to even meet a bit, there's something not right, you know. 
it, it doesn't it doesn't matter how brilliant some of the detail is the way they fit together doesn't work they should fit together very well and ultimately you know if we eventually nail exactly what our history and origins is the, the explanation should be able to you know explain everything um that's the objective you know I, I, like you say i'm not suggesting i'm there yet but i think with some of these big pieces you get i mean i, I get this a lot where People will say, oh, well, what about the explanation for fatty acids and, and eating fish on the coast? Or what about the starch theory? What, you know, every piece has one or maybe several possible theories, and some of them have got some good points. But do they start joining together? Well, yeah, you might get a couple of them to fit where they touch, but they, they should really all fit. You shouldn't need 10 different theories to explain 10 different bits of human origins. And that to me is what we've got, but we're so used to it, we kind of don't see that. Yeah, so from an origins standpoint, I, I see what you mean. If we have to overlap seven theories to reach one, I mean, it, it begins to sound almost like a lie on top of a lie, right? To where, well, uh, this could happen, and if this could happen, then that could happen, and we're, well, not quite at our destination where we want to be, and not not to forget just the bias of where we want it to be anyway that plays into whatever the, the origin theory may be. Uh, it seems to cross over and overlap so many times that, like you said, you it, it doesn't clearly stand out whatsoever about um, the origins of us and especially um, the idea that we're built on competition that we have somehow evolved and uh, evolved out of competition versus each other uh, when this begins to overlap and just kind of yeah that's it that's what it was we competed and that's how we've evolved and that's why we think like we do today sure and <clears throat> and again like a lot of these theories there's there's some very good stuff in in some of these theories and and they work for lots of things um so i'm i'm not trying to reinvent the wheel i'm just trying to really get a good match and in particular ask the question that i don't think gets asked enough and back to the original points we were talking about um we we've, we've tended i think collectively and certainly in modern science to presume that our neural system more or less works you know, it, it, and we, we've learned bits and pieces about this, that, and the other. Actually, we still know very little about our brain, really. But we more or less presume it works. How does it work? And that's kind of fair enough to a point. Um, but if we're going to deal with this in the sort of scientific method, as, as we like to kind of kid ourselves we're going to do if, if we're doing anything academic, the very first thing we should ask is whether the equipment we're using to do the analysis actually works at all which might sound ridiculous, you know, well, of course it works. Well, hang on a minute. Let's just step back and ask that question. Can, you know, can we trust our neural system? Is there any evidence whatsoever that there's any dysfunction there? Because if there is, we've got to start factoring that in. And to me, that's, that's dare I say, a complete no-brainer. You know, this, whether it's psychiatry, whether it's, it's neurology, everywhere you look, there's things that in one context are seen as maybe specialist or quirky in another context would be seen as pathology you know there's something seriously wrong here but we kind of make it fit to how we want it to be um so, so that that's i always like to bring that to the table straight away what work have we done to ensure that we're even able to address these questions let alone start coming up with answers um having said that I think there is a mountain of excellent data. You know, one thing Western science has done is created mountains and mountains of data, endless, endless PhDs and projects looking at every last detailed piece. 
which has its use if you can sift through it all. Um, and again, I think once you ask the question, even from pretty sort of solid academic data, never mind anything a little bit more what would be considered, you know, outside the mainstream, you know, I, 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 I pose this question every time, is there any evidence? Well, to me, there's a load of evidence and it's in the orthodox literature. It's just nobody asked the question, that's all. Um, so again, again, I think even in these discussions, we should factor it in, but certainly when you're starting to make a serious approach, um, that's a question we really need to ask. And if, if it turns out our neural system and our perception and everything that goes with that is absolutely fine, then great. You know, I'm, I'm as happy as anyone else, but I'm going to take a lot of convincing, I can tell you. Uh, well, I would, I would have to as well. I mean, when I even wrote about it, if we can take uh, a perception that we shape, understand it's really not necessarily a truth, but one that's built on expectations, social norms, right? What we've been taught. And we can modify just our perception, aka the truth of what we believe. And that can literally affect how you feel, what you think, what's happening biologically. I mean, it's it's so connected, but almost utterly not real, right? If, if we can go that far, if, if part of what I'm doing as a cognitive practitioner is helping people reframe something to be something else, well, then this, to me, points to the fact that, well, then nothing's concrete. Then how could we trust what we believe to be truth, what we found in this research, what we uh, observed or, or took away? I mean, all of that deserves questioning just from the fact that I can say, you know, today is going to be a good day. And that does register my brain differently and my biology differently than saying today is going to be a crappy day. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we modify it just at that level, my God, I, what <laughs> you know, what what is the reality? Well, yeah. And I, and I think there's a lot to support that. There's a lot of people moving in those directions and have been forever. Um, I, I, th I think where it falls down again is, is this sense of. I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but this kind of blind belief in our intellectual superiority um, collectively and particularly coming out of the scientific traditions. Um, I think that's one of our biggest enemies, you know, in terms of addressing anything. There's so much false certainty and history's taught us time and time again that, you know, what's what's the current paradigm becomes a laughing stock a generation later or 10 generations later. That's not to say everything we're doing now is going to end up in that kind of camp, but we need to be a lot more flexible in how we view what is the current paradigm and encourage, you know, dissent and, and really test, stress test it as much as we can with as many kind of crazy ideas as we can, because this is really important stuff. If, you know, if, if there is a problem with our perception and we're using that to build a culture, you know, that's ultimately what a, a culture is an expression of a perception at some level then it's it's going to be a complete mess. Well, you know, to me, my personal view on it is it's a complete disaster. In fact, you'd be hard pushed to create something more hellish if you tried. You know, you could probably manage it, but to kind of keep it sustainable and constantly stressful and the carnage that's gone on in a relatively recent history, we, you know, we might be living in a, a period where there's not a world war, for example, but every day there's 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 weapons designed to kill humans being being manufactured and deployed and used every day and we kind of so used to that we think you know yeah it's, it's a bit of a conflict here it's a bit of a uh, whatever it is there our reaction you know we be, become so jaded by the dysfunction of our culture that we i don't think we see remotely see how seriously dysfunctional it is and that's that you know it sounds pretty harsh but 
And like I said earlier, if, if there isn't a problem, great. I've wasted my time. I don't mind that. But if there is a problem, the quicker we find out what that is and where it lives, the quicker we can turn this around. And to me, again, going back to your point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about evidence and data. Yes, as you know, you've you got to ask, well, who asked the question? What was the motivation? How was how were the parameters set up? But the raw data, I think we've got enough raw data. Um, it's it's the conclusions that have often been shaped by expectations, cultural expectations, um, and then great towers have been built on them where they almost can't be touched. So the idea, for example, that we're primarily the product of adaptive selection due to competition, as you, as you touched on. And, and yeah, it, you know, I think it's a great theory. I, I think it's still an embryonic theory and it's, it is evolving all the time. And there is more willingness now to factor in symbiosis and epigenetics you know it, it's 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 expanding out um although to be honest i think it was always uh, you know I, I think the the original darwinian theory is much more eclectic than it's been applied in recent times it, it was never so much about you know kill or be killed and let's let's use that to justify our culture um but getting back to basics I, i'm i'm reasonably convinced that the 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 neural configuration, so our neural structure, how our brain develops, and the neurochemical regime, so those two things which I'm going to call our neural configuration, extremely complex, unbelievably complex and very precise, that somehow correlates with our perception and how we behave and everything else. You change that and it changes everything else. Pretty simple stuff and not really that many arguments come up about it. And yet here we are in a culture or in, you know, in cultures where we pretty much don't tolerate people changing the neurological configuration you know it's it, it, it's 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 something that's a bit taboo at best and 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 criminal at, at worst you know you, you can be put to death in some cultures if you dare change the configuration of your neural system and yet our history tells us you know from many sources but particularly um you know, mainstream science. Tony, I'm just sorry to cut you off, man. I, I'm just trying to bring people in too, as you as you talk about those things that can get complicated. I mean, basically stating that if you if you think about acting outside of the norms, you're very likely to be either incarcerated, killed, or given a mental health diagnosis or put on some spectrum somewhere if the mind doesn't map out or the behavior. These things don't match to the social norms. That's kind of what I took away from that piece. Um, absolutely. I, you know, I, 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 much of our behavior is based on conditioning, much more than we realize. We, we don't realize how deeply conditioned we are. Um, and it's a, it's a very rigid system. Um, and it's actually increasingly, you know, it, it's, it's seen the, the richness and variation of human culture is supposed to be revered. And isn't it amazing? We have all these different belief systems. And I kind of understand why that would be how we might think about it. But I'm going to I'm going to kind of take a little bit of a leap and say that perhaps our capacity for belief and conditioning is part of the pathology. We shouldn't be running on beliefs, however accurate they may be. They're still a rigid cage. They're kind of part of a primitive mammalian system where you know a lot of mammals have this they, they get i don't know a year or two with their with their parents to learn stuff you've got to learn stuff to survive and you get this plastic very plastic window you learn your life skills and then 
as you as you as the hormones kick in and you you sort of get ready for sexual reproduction which is a big part of the game obviously that changes everything including your brain it sort of you know it sort of makes the neural tissue more rigid in a, in a sense and you're stuck then with your kind of basic program to get through life it's not 100% rigid but there's a big element of that and i think that works very well it works for countless species it's worked for a very long time and i think the presumption is that's why we have conditioning but I'm going to suggest, going way back, that we were relatively unique. I think there were other sort of related species, but we ended up retaining that plasticity right through our lives. So we were running real time, phenomenal neural capacity, phenomenal perception, phenomenal memory. So, so it's not like we didn't have reference points, no doubt a cultural heritage, but we dealt with things in real time. We didn't have these rigid beliefs that we had memory, but we, they didn't govern our didn't govern our decisions. It was all real time, um, and we see glimpses of that. We see it more in children, younger people, and then a few people seem to have glimpses of this. Where again, they're not so tied in with their beliefs and their conditioning and so on. Um, but to really, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that whole raft of experience, beliefs, conditionings right the way across human society i think is a symptom of this condition um which is pretty challenging oh man so more or less looking at things that we believe to be just part of it facts or whatever you're looking at more as symptoms or uh building a symptomology almost looking for a diagnosis here of our human interaction our human civilization i mean i mean wow before you start to go too uh, even further deep, right? I'm, that fifty thousand foot view we were talking about earlier is, you know, you may hear stats and numbers come out, right? That it's a better time to live than it ever was from now. Less people die of diseases, less murder. These things that make you feel comfortable. But I, I have often argued that by saying the day we decided to make a weapon that could destroy the earth, we have lost our minds. We have lost our minds and we continue to make more, but then believe in this cognitive dissonance that this is this safer world or whatnot uh, because of this data or this data. But the fact is that there's over 5,000 nuclear weapons when only uh, a few are needed to wipe us out and, and then as a whole. And then we allow this to continue and look down and look just to reference some old uh, some old text. Right. You know, call that the Bible anywhere else they write about how it ends. <laughs> they kind of tell you, you know, and it's hard not to step back really and let go of beliefs, right? Because you have the intellectuals that have the belief all of this stuff is crap, right? And then the reverse to where you have the heavily religious that believe all the science is crap. I've often said if they learn to work together, we'll figure something out. Um, but to look at the state of the, the world that we're in now, and for you to, to talk about that, how beliefs and those beliefs that that hold rigid uh, are certainly symptomatic and if not pointing the direction to our demise. Yeah, and, you know, you, you mentioned that fairly sort of minor contradiction, <laughs> you know, isn't life great? Oh, forget the 5,000 nuclear weapons or whatever. You know, it, it's our culture's full of those juxtapositions in, in, in my mind. You know, it, it, it's like... Um, yeah, life's better. You can get up. Uh, or, 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 you know, you, you go to school. You learn how. You you learn a few bits and pieces. You go to the munitions factory. You build some nuclear weapons. You come home, and everything's cool. You can buy a car and watch TV. But that's that's the actual juxtaposition there. You know, it, it, it's like a culture's based on fear and control, 
Um, and we've got to come up with a narrative about how great it is. And typically people will point to, I don't know, medieval urban living or, or you know, times when there was extreme malnutrition, extreme exploitation. And yeah, things might not be quite as bad as that in some areas, but that's not a place to compare things to. You know, I, I want to know how we did, you know, way back when, when we were living in a very, very different environment where we didn't have to basically deal with all these problems we've created and that's that that comparison's never made so you get people like who is it Stephen Pinker and, and people like him who were talking about how wonderful things are well I think the comparisons are, are very poor and actually there's massive cognitive dissonance within that you you know using that one example and there are countless examples you know it's uh, I, I use this a bit in talks I mean we're talking to each other through bits of technology which we get very impressed by and, and we tend to mistake ourselves as a technology of course we're not but the stuff we're using quite probably if you chase the supply chains and and so on there'll be a load of exploitation all the way down and there'll be people living in miserable shit existence so that we can you know do this kind of live kind of thing but that's the contradiction we don't want to see you know, um, and 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 it's it, it's full of that kind of stuff. So yeah, you know, I, th I think there's serious serious cognitive dissonance. And again, back to the point I made earlier, it's not like there aren't an awful lot of PhD papers on this and related. You know, there's a lot of stuff on how delusional humans are, how we tend to confabulate, how we tend to lie without even knowing it. You know, a lot of material on that, and it's not. It's not just the drugged out hippies, for example, it's everybody. So that therefore means the neurological researchers, the cycle. And this, this, isn't, this isn't judging anybody. It's basically saying we've all got serious problems with our neural system. And yet we tend to elevate certain people because of our dysfunction and presume that they know what they're doing. And yeah, you know, some people have made great contributions. I'm not denying that either. But we should be questioning everything a lot more, particularly starting by looking in the mirror which is the last place most of us want to look because you know we, we can look around and go oh, well the politicians and yeah you know there's probably a case to be made there i think i think those kind of um uh, living like that and having that much power appeals to a certain subset of people and yeah there are some decent people there but i think it tends to tends to appeal to the more sociopathic element of society and then we end up with generally pretty dysfunctional people running everything um, but we conditioned that, well, if you wear a suit and you've got a doctorate in politics and you've made a lot of money, you must know what you're doing. When, in fact, people haven't got the first clue about what they're doing. Yeah. The fact that we still pick out a, a head monkey in charge is uh, scary. You know, it, uh, you want to laugh at it, but behind laughter is tears. But it's scary the fact that we go, OK, I mean, it's nothing short of going, OK, he runs faster than all of us. He's our leader. You know what I mean? He, he has more money than all of us. He's our leader. Then they achieve these social constructs of human behavior to a pinnacle, all shaped by a belief of what we think defines what that means. And all of the faith in humanity goes to this one leader. It's it's archaic, if not anything, or maybe, I don't know, destructive. Mm, well, it's, it's, it's pretty much the opposite of where I think our origins work. I mean, we're talking a bit about symptoms here and, mm. you know, lots of people are looking at various symptoms and that's great. Um, but kind of trying to get it, how we're in such a sea of symptoms that we can't even see anymore. And um, that, that's how it looks to me. Um, but 
I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and, and there's good evidence for this, again, going back to the basic evidence that our origins and the origins of our expanding new brain, the, you know, the neocortex that, that emerged very quickly, um, was symbiotic. You know, that was a product of symbiosis, the very opposite of this obsession with competition and survival of the fittest. Not that I'm saying that doesn't go on, but there's clearly examples of profound levels of co cooperation and symbiosis where species virtually merge at the biochemical level. And lo and behold, we're one of the species that fit that bill based on, you know, based on the mainstream evidence. We, we, we lived in the forest for millions of years, according to the evidence. Um, and we formed a relationship with the, the flower and plants, the trees, and by ingesting their reproductive organs. That's a really weird relationship. You know, there's not many species of specialized in eating the reproductive organs of a whole other kingdom. So that's a, that's a kind of weird entry to this. But when you start looking at that and what that means in terms of biochemistry and how it affects everything, oh my God, it's like opening Pandora's box. But the, the kind of headline is, um, and you know, maybe we'll have time to get into a bit more detail, is that actually I think, I think our one-time astounding mind, I'm not so sure the state it's in now, was a direct product of, of a, a collaboration of forest biochemistry way, way off the scale that more than any mammal could ever produce on its own. You know, I, I basically think the forest, um, through this relationship, effectively kidnapped a pretty basic mammal, you know, with all the basic mammalian traits, survival ability, hierarchy, fast food production, all that stuff that works, you know, works in a survival sense. And re-engineered our DNA, read the DNA differently because of the chemistry and the reproductive organs. And that allowed us to grow this, well, this this shocking lump proliferated out of a head that's still hotly debated. You know, I know the theories, but there's still a lot of debate as to where this thing came from, what the hell is it for? Um, and, you know, I, I think it was a, it, it, it's basically an emergent structure where you get two systems that symbiotically entangle then you can get what's you know technically called emergent structures and emergent function that neither one could produce this thing on its own, but through this kind of collaboration, you get this emergent structure. And I think that's what our neocortex was. And it, you know, it explains its rapid emergence, its rapid expansion, and then lo and behold, it stops expanding, it's been shrinking, and now we behave like a bunch of idiots. Well, maybe, just maybe the biggest piece of the jigsaw has gone missing. You know, we, we tend to look at ourselves as isolated mammals, classic reductionist stuff, and you can understand why that is the case. And yet it's accepted that we formed a symbiotic relationship for millions of years. So why aren't we kind of tearing that apart? Because that's one of the unique features of human origins, if the date is good. And I, I've got no reason to think it's not. You know, um, what again, what species spends tens of millions of years focused on ingesting the reproductive organs of a whole other kingdom. I've not very many. <laughs> Surely we should be looking at that, you know, and it's kind of in the literature, it's acknowledged, but it's no, no, let's, it all happened on the savannah. It's when we learned to hunt and kill each other and kill animals and we needed intelligence to do that. And it's, you know, you need half a dozen theories to even begin to explain each individual piece, let alone make them fit together. It just doesn't work. Um, but yeah, back to your point, I, I actually think talking about having people in charge, it's the irony to me with many of these things is I think we were 
not in not in some kind of new age hippie sense, even though I might fall into that camp a little bit. I think we were highly symbiotic species in a very deep level, way, way deeper than most species ever get. You know, almost the same individual collectively and and connected in a way, again, not just in some kind of new age hippie way, but connected with the forest biochemistry in an absolutely essential way. Basically, our neural system was produced by the forest chemistry and it depends on the forest biochemistry. And when you take that away, a bit like if you split a lichen up and try and take a lichen into its composite parts. So you've got fungus, you've got um, the, the algae, and I think recently they've discovered there's yeast in there as well. Then the structure of those individual components and their function is very, very different. But you put them all together and you get these very, very complex structures emerging. Now, it's a very crude analogy, but I, I, I'm saying something like that went on with human human origins and particularly to do with our, the, the proliferation of our neural system. And again, we can get to why that might have happened if we've got time. Man, uh, all of the theories I've ever studied, just the psychology merging theories, you know, uh, about social connectedness, um, as I mean, Dr. Mate talks a lot about that, how people affected with addiction aren't socially connected. Uh, all of these come zooming in at me, man. And when I think about um, this, uh, re this return. And this return to this nature thing is almost trendy now, right? This eating organic foods. I mean, the people that go into uh, and go into the forest, go into the woods, go hiking, right? They come back. <clears throat> oh, yes, it's my release. It's where I feel most free. It's where I feel human. Uh, it's where I feel okay, right? The, the, we run to these AK quotes vacation spots, right? Um, or the weekend warriors, right? We get out there to that spot. That seems the more we have gone away from that. Uh, I argued once before, uh, actually probably just to my girlfriend, Patricia, as we were watching, um, when agriculture gets created and we start building city walls, right, the forest became something of this dark place not to return as almost as if, the, like you said, the prefrontal cortex took over like this secondary operating system then became stronger than the other two operating systems and also has quite an ego and, and believes itself to be right. And the argument of competition, like you said, on the Sahara, et cetera. Well, I, I would argue that we tend to do more things when we work in symbiosis, when we work together as a whole or a structure. More amazing things get accomplished in this idea of competition, stronger survives, et cetera. Uh, almost the, the reverse, that when we started down that path of strong survive of, um, you know, natural selection, when this began to start, maybe this was our downhill when it started to uh, I'll rule the forest. Right. I'll I'll rule the tribe. I, I'm better and faster. I get everything. The um, assumption starts. Right. And then now you see this not on a mass level, but this return to nature, this return to all things organic and healthy and vitamin D. Dr. Jack Cruz has been on here talking about how technology is killing us and blue light is killing our brains. And he's an actual neurosurgeon, right? Our lack of vitamin C and D, these antioxidant deficiencies, all of these changes that are happening, man. I just this is the box of Pandora that you open when I start to listen to you and and really hear you in the one on one here for most people, I think, to even begin to walk down this this uh, theory is the fact that it we're not really getting better, right? It's trying to first help people understand that, that could we really, like you said, be lost in these sea of symptoms that we've convinced ourselves is the way life goes and just the way we have to be. 
Well, yeah, I'm not going to disagree. Um, I, although I, the only point I pick up on is that um, I think that that sort of shift into a more downward spiral, which may not have happened all at the same time. I think there may have been different lineages. It, it could, could get quite complicated there, but let's leave that for a moment. Um, you know, I, I don't think that happened until there was a problem, um, and it, you know, it's hinted at because although I'm I'm, I'm trying to wherever I can make the um what we call the more mainstream scientific data fit because i think that's what we're so used to and that's what we expect and i'd expect that to work it, you know the information should be in there somewhere but there are other approaches there are other traditions and uh, you know we, we we have this this whole library of mythology that tends to be downplayed by um mainstream science but within that, there's there's a, there's a consistent theme that at one time our distant ancestors were in phenomenally different state of mind than us. Um, and and again, to try and just emphasise this, yeah, they might have been physically a little bit different, but it's it's how they perceived themselves that was radically different. You know, we tend to describe, oh, they yeah, they were smarter, they had they could do better things. No, it, how they actually perceived themselves is very different. And that's difficult for us to get our heads around unless we've messed around with our consciousness that we know how weird things can get, you know, and I, I, I've dabbled with that, obviously. Um, but I, these traditions are, are, are pretty consistent. Um, and I, I think, it, you know, you start marrying these things up and they seem to me to tell the same story. And it's actually not that complicated. So mainstream science would say that our ancestors, um, and I'm doing some slight interpretation here, but they had a bigger brain than us. Does that mean anything? You know, people go on about how big our brain is. I, I think size is a factor. I actually think it's a structure that's way more important. We'll get to that. Um, but they had a bigger brain. Um, they lived in an environment which was flooded with antioxidants, for example. So they had a they had their perceptual equipment, the most complex thing we know, is bigger. It was flooded with highly protective chemistry. Um, so I'm, I'm staying fairly safe here. Things that we know would be way, way better. They didn't build the most complex thing we know that we use for everything out of shit. And we do that now. We kind of have a giggle about it and, and so on. So how on earth we can be so arrogant to presume that we knew more than our ancestors when they at least were building the most complex thing we know with a hell of a lot more care than we do. And yet we think, oh, yeah, it, you know, I know what I'm doing. It works. Um, so, so I think even at that very basic level, there's a degree of presumption and arrogance built into the way we assess things and the way we look at history and the way we look at these traditions and the way we treat mainstream science. You know, I, I think we're, we're, we're classic sort of there's still glimmers of genius in humans, clearly, but increasingly we're, we're overwhelmed by our idiocy. And that's I think if that's not self-evident. Maybe it's too late to have this discussion. You know, um, so so yeah, I, I think there's I, I think there's a lot of things um, where you can. It's like you say, walking down this path. It, it, it's, I, it's I can't think of the film, but it's it's you know it's like one of those slightly surreal films where you're walking through the woods and every step you take, you know, the flowers open and the birds start. You know, there's lots of things spin out from this that we could discuss for weeks and weeks, and it's fascinating. But pulling it back to its core which I think is absolutely essential, it's back to this basic question. Is our neural system, is our perceptual equipment functional? If it's not, what the hell is going on? Because if we don't solve that, everything else is going to go to shit. And I think 
actually that's not future tense it's going to shit you know and historically the patterns are there and yeah you know sometimes it gets a bit worse and then sometimes it gets a bit better but overall the patterns seem to be the same it's just bigger scale of self-inflicted madness and self-destruction and if you step back from that individual sense of self we all typically have as a, as a species it's self-harm you know and when when you walk into the modern clinicians and say look i've been hurting myself you know alarm bells go off oh my god that's a serious symptom of something or other well look at what we're doing to ourselves and the place we live you know we, people watch it on the tv every night that ten thousand more hectares of forest have gone ten thousand more oil tankers have sunk and you know whatever crazy shit it is you know and that's every day that's every day and and the quality of life we, we've provided for ourselves, even in so-called advanced culture, it's absolutely miserable and stressful for 99% of people, as far as I can tell. But we've all learned, it, you know, how you get on, oh, yeah, things are fine. Fucking hell. Most people would immediately trade their circumstances for something else if they could. Now, if that's if that's the case, maybe I'm wrong, but if that's the case, what on earth are we doing? Why are we putting up with this? Uh, yeah. And then we have to shape more beliefs, right? Um, I went on a, a similar tangent of the idea of saying, this is not going to go over well. Um, uh, <laughs> I said it, uh, you know, that as parents, we try to do the best to protect our children, right? Provide the best for our children. And we go to work 40 hours a week where we don't see our children. We spend less time with them so we can provide, if you will, more material things or experiences for them. And thus really raise somebody to be just like us under our structured beliefs of really take care of yourself, take care of your family. Don't spend much time with them, although the most time you really want to spend is with them. But what we've constructed as being a man these days or a good parent even uh, takes you away from what you love most for the most period of time, stresses you out, makes you unhealthy. Whether it's a nine to five job, even if you love it, it's still stressful and the things we cherish most. But yet we go, hey, I'm a good parent because I have provided all these things and then raised another person that's going to sacrifice their life, their time, their health for the people they love most to create this image because I have to. I have to create this to be what defines me as a good parent because, well, it's the society I live in. It's what I have to do. It's what defines me as being that good parent. But we have to create that story. Now, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know what the other side of that is either, Tony. And yours is a much larger scale of that. This We are living this illusion that we believe to be the grandeur of life um, uh, under some idea of grandeur, I should say, and living this life ignoring the obvious. You know, that if it's 40, 50 hours at a job and they're at school, we're, we're not really with the ones we love. So we have to say, hey, I provide a big house for them. I have provided. Aren't I awesome? And, and, and uh, it hurts and it's scary for me to even say or think about because I fall in that category. But it's a smaller scale of what you're saying is that we're walking around having to shape a story of what modern life is, laughing at the mythologies, laughing back at, oh, weren't they funny? They believed in all this other stuff. Uh, and looking to ourselves as being the answer to the future, although it's the same, well, it's the same malnourished, I guess you could say, or the same dysfunctional, I should say, same dysfunctional brain operating these continually rationalities of perceptions we shape to force a social narrative. Mm. Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, I can't add much to that. Um, it's it, it's a bit like being born in a gulag and, you know, 
people still care for each other and love each other. That's still there, you know, for the most part. Um, although by degrees it starts to become absent in people with this condition where it's more severe, I think. But it's, yeah, you know, it, it's a bit like, well, here we are. So what are you going to do? Are you going to go to the to the workshop to earn your little bit of crust to feed your kid or not? Well, of course you're going to do that. But you're still in this prison environment almost. And yeah, well, we might as well earn those few crusts and put some wallpaper in the prison cell or whatever. But that's kind of what we're doing, you know, kind of trying to make the best out of a horrendous situation. And it's it, it's not exactly encouraged, if anything, quite the opposite. I mean, I, I, I live in a, you know, probably not as liberal culture as I would like to think. And it's, it's, it's certainly changing, I think. But for the most part, you can still express your opinions, um, you know, build websites. I mean, that's changing a bit and so on. But a lot of cultures aren't like that. And historically, they haven't been like that. So even, you know, any any attempt to to, to question the status quo at times and even now can be, um, well, you could lose your life and, and your family's life. So so there's a lot of pressure to, to, to maintain the status quo, which, again, I think is part of this neurological com uh, condition. Um, but individually, it's phenomenally challenging. It's bad enough, you know, it's hard enough to run on the treadmill to just about just about stay above water if you're lucky. The idea of thinking about, well, what the hell am I doing on this treadmill? How can I take it to bits and escape? You know, that that's beyond, or, or, or it's the situation has been created where that's beyond most of us. We just don't have that capacity. So, you know, I, I speak to a lot of people, and a lot of people agree with the general vibe that we're talking about. But like you say, what on earth do you do? How do you break out of that? And, you know, individually, you can have a go, and some people make a bit of a go of it. But collectively, it's it, it's... You know, you'd, you'd be rounded up for, for for some kind of revolution or something if you started trying to actively encourage people to walk away from this madness. And I'm not sure that would work anyway, in all honesty. I, th I think if there's any way out of this, um, you know, I, my, my own particular angle on this is if, if it's possible, you know, obviously I've been working at this for 20 odd years and still not well, had some success, but it's certainly not viraled in the way I, I hoped it might. But it, if, if there is a serious problem with a neural system, and I'm pretty convinced there is, if that can if that can make it into mainstream awareness and the evidence holds up, that I think puts massive, massive pressure on anybody then standing up and saying, yep, let's just keep going over the cliff. It's like, whoa, because we already instinctively know it's insane. We know a lot of people who are drawn to positions of power and saying, we kind of already know that, but there's not that left brain rational mechanism to explain it where we can't run away from it um, I mean some people would try anyway I've no doubt but it, but if as I say very challenging idea but if it, if it became widely accepted that humans are brain damaged let's call it what it is um, there is a way to fix it you know let's be clear on that I'm not interested in just offering a diagnosis and we're screwed and I'm walking away I think there is a way to turn this around and, and actually potentially very quick but until we know what the cause is and at least address these questions i think you know i honestly think we are screwed and to me this idea of a of a seriously compromised neural system on the one hand is very challenging i kind of get that even though i've lived with it for years and it's i find it exciting actually uh, because at least it offers the potential for radical change at the very core and going back to what i was saying earlier if our behavior our perception our sense of who and what we are is in some way 
um, facilitated. I'm not going to say produce because I, I, I don't buy into the brain produces. I, I think it's more like a, a lens or facilitates. But anyway, um, if it somehow facilitates all those things, and we know tiny changes, whether it's neural damage um, or chemicals or accidents or, or drugs or whatever, we know we can elicit massive, massive changes in our perception and behavior by relatively small changes in our neural configuration, as I was saying earlier. And we also know quite a lot about how to make relatively positive changes. We already know that, you know, there's whole classes of neurologically active compounds that have been used for thousands of years in very beneficial ways. So we already know how to make some changes that could expand our very limited perception a bit. I'm not talking about solutions here. We'd feel better. We'd feel more connected with each other. We already know how to do that. That's already here. That's that's not something that has to be investigated. I don't think that's a solution. I think that's taking a step away from the abyss and, you know, buying this some time while we figure out what the hell is going on and figure out how to turn what I think was perhaps one of the most phenomenal consciousness systems around that I think has had a serious crash starting to repair it. And, and, I, and I think it, it, I think it can, I think we can tap into a lot of latent function very quickly. That's why I'm excited. You know, that's why, I, yeah, yeah, we're brain damaged, uh, boo-hoo. But we can turn this around, you know. We can, we can actually do things. And there's a lot of clues in our history, in our culture, in, you know, historical cultures where people have been determined to pass on information. And if you start pooling and putting it all together, it starts pointing at, A, what the problem is, B, how to start fixing it. Um, and, you know, if we're scared of even looking at that, you know, are we potentially much more, or could we be much more than we are in terms of much more functional, much more cooperative, much more creative, much less aggressive, blah, blah, blah. We're not even going to look at that seriously. And again, maybe it's too late. I don't know. But I hope that isn't the case. And, and you know, people are interested and people are starting to, you know, look into this. Well, hope is a, a whole nother uh, perception or, or creation we have. If if you could, can you walk through, because I know you're pulling to find a diagnosis, if you will, or um, can you walk kind of the etiology toward that diagnosis uh, beyond the symptomatic behavior uh, and kind of maybe mix in what you've been talking about, some of the older myths, some of the uh, our ancient ancestors, right, and some of their thoughts of knowledge uh, wanting to be passed down or hopefully passed down uh, that... <clears throat> tend to ignore with our almighty science etc uh, and kind of walk walk toward either the diagnosis you have or your or your pointing toward and whether that's through biology neurology environmental adaptation uh, just kind of walk all that and see if we can at least fit those three pieces in <laughs> well I'll try uh, the, the main problem isn't you know is not to run off in huge tangents because that's what my mind does I, I, I want to explain the whole landscape you know, and then come back to the call. And that's great if you've got three weeks. But uh, yeah, very briefly, then I'll, I'll, I'll try and do this. And I, I, I do, as I say, try and base it on modern scientific terminology, because I think it's very useful. And it's a good, it's a good way to build the core. But I do draw on other things as well. So simplistically, and please, I'm sure you will jump in if I, if I get lost down the rabbit hole. Um, but trying to find a sort of way in here. Um, and there's many ways in. Um, Going on what we already know about mammals generally, could talk about other species, but let's talk about mammals and even humans and some of our living relatives. Okay, so, uh, you know, we're conceived, we grow in the uterus, we're, we're born, we're in this very juvenile stage. Humans 
have some very unusual juvenile features. We're pretty helpless when we're born, which is which is quite unusual, and helpless for at least a year, if not longer. We can kind of hang on to our parents, but you know we're we're clearly not able to survive. So we have this very unusual juvenile phase, and it goes on longer than most species. And that's been well written about. There's plenty of references on that. But what goes along with that, and what I'm interested in, is during that time, that juvenile phase, which is all controlled by hormones. So it's it's the hormones that allow us to be juvenile, or the lack of hormones that allow us to be juvenile. Um, within that window, our brain's growing very quickly. Okay, so when we're you know from birth till let's say eight or ten years old, maybe a little bit younger, our brains our brains been growing quickly. It's still very symmetrical. There's very little lateralized structural lateralization that comes in with the hormones as we mature um and it's very plastic way that's when we hoover you know we're, we're sucking in information faster than it can be put in front of us phenomenal capacity to learn um you know you know kids will just absorb stuff without even realizing they're learning um and as we approach um puberty and sexual maturation the hormone regime shifts we get what are called the sex hormones, the sex steroids come in, things like estrogens and testosterone. And their job is to turn us from a juvenile into a into a sexually reproductive organism. Because kind of without that, we're screwed, you know. It wouldn't last very long if we didn't reproduce. And that's the basic model, and that's cool and everything. Um, anyway, so these hormones come in. They change our whole system, uh, our phys physicality. We become sexually mature. And it changes our brain a lot as well. Um, not only... Um, do we start losing that very juvenile plastic brain? It, it becomes more differentiated, more structured, more specialized. Each side of the brain starts changing at a different rate as well. One side of our brain. Now, I've not seen this in the literature, so this is me paraphrasing a bit, but I, I think this is about maturation. The brain starts maturing, sexually maturing and maturing generally, one side more quickly than the other. Um, and this is the same for all mammals. This wasn't really solidly known until i don't know 10 15 years ago that all mammals have a genetically asymmetric brain um, and when they're young the the genetic asymmetry isn't switched on so more, you know a lot of mammals have again more symmetrical hemispheres and then as they mature sexually mature which for a lot of species can be very young you know six months a year two years three years whatever um, but with humans much later that's when you get this shift uh, the hemispheres diverge in their structure and function, and they're both maturing, okay? So I don't know if we can hold on to that idea that it's just the brain maturing, and that's what it's supposed to do, and we reproduce and great job done, okay? But we've lost that juvenile window. We've lost that capacity for rapid learning, and some of the other things I should have mentioned that you see, even in, even in pre pre predatory species, you know, you look at juvenile species of almost any species, they're playful. They're cooperative. They're much less aggressive. Even the aggressive. I mean, they're obviously they'll play, fight, and so on. But they're not. They're not in that same kill everything kind of mode. Um, and and uh, non-predatory species. Again, you see it much more. Whether it's lambs or deer or whatever. You know, they run around. They play with each other. There's not this hierarchy. Um, it's 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 much more. In some ways, much more symbiotic. I guess. Um, so that's the basic plot. That's very well understood. Anybody can go and check out those fake developmental phases. Okay, and what I'm saying happened is when we got into the when we we're in the forest, we started this weird relationship with the trees. It took a long time to develop, but eventually we became specialized in ingesting the reproductive organs of the trees. We call it fruit, obviously, today. 
remember it's a reproductive organ it's it's not entirely well it's kind of an analogous with the human uterus the human reproductive system so you imagine you're eating enough of this stuff not just one piece of fruit in august when there's lots of fruit around but you're in the tropical forest in fact the non-seasonal tropical forest where you get fruit all year round it's the only place you can get it so you're eating this stuff you specialize in it um, and you're eating i don't know four or five kilos a day maybe more so you're basically flooding your system with the reproductive biochemistry of the plants, okay? Taking that a slight step further, you can imagine, if you like, that really we spent our symbiotic time in the plant's reproductive system, metaphorically, you know, metaphorically. We might as well have been in part in, in the, we might as well have been in the plant's uterus because it's flooding us with this stuff all this all the time. Just, you know, allow that picture to emerge. And I think I, I maybe should have brought some images. Uh, I've got some slides and stuff that, that show this as an idea. Because once people get that idea, it's a, power, it's a powerful idea. So we're kind of locked into this relationship, flooded with plant reproductive biochemistry. And the thing about plant reproductive biochemistry is it has some parallels with mammalian, but it's also quite different. It inhibits and dilutes a lot of the key components of mammalian kind of development like the steroids that that govern everything particularly our brain so we formed this relationship and, and essentially what happens and again people can chase the detail later i've, I've got plenty of it backed up elsewhere um it's it's basically dampening down our own developmental windows it's slowing down a maturation process it's, it's allowing us a longer period um to develop this um more juvenile brain okay so that's step one. The plants have a big effect because they're flooding us with reproductive biochemistry. And this went on for millions of years. We're not talking about you know, a couple of weeks or something. This was a very long process, according to the data. Now, the weird thing that I spotted in all this, and I think is fairly unique, it's probably the one thing I have pointed out that may or may not hold water, is that if you start modifying your neural system, um, basically creating a more juvenile environment so you can grow a more juvenile neural system which is what i think the fruit did you you then run into this potential for a feedback loop you grow a new juvenile brain and because the brain runs the hormone system it will run a more juvenile hormone system that's what kids do you know that's why they're juveniles because their brain is still juvenile it's running a more juvenile hormone system but the clock's ticking it's like slowly eroding and the clock's ticking eventually goes into full-on maturation. Well, the fruit put a stop to this, slowed it right down, built as a new brain, and that new brain was more juvenile. It starts producing more juvenile hormone regime, and there you have the potential for fast track. It starts running away. We get more and more juvenile. We produce more juvenile offspring. They, they don't mature quite as quickly, so it allows them time to grow an even bigger, more juvenile brain, and, you know, the whole thing can run off with itself, which is, I think, is the explanation for why our brain grew so absolutely rapidly. Um, so we're not talking about just the fruit. The fruit potentiated all this, and then our own endocrine system, our own hormone system, kind of being modified by the plants, began to head in the same direction. It began to produce more and more juvenile environment. And that whole thing is fantastic when it's all locked together. Yeah, just to come off the endocrine system, the way cannabis is linked to it. I mean, we're breathing the plants essentially. Uh, being in the woods, the forest, these things are great for us on so many different levels. The seeds themselves that are blossoming off of, uh, as you call the fruit, basically, then that makes more fruit in the seeds. But we, yet we ingest that, then our endocrine system just kind of 
rolls it into how it's already operating, takes whatever it wants from it, adds that to what we're doing. But that essentially would make us begin to operate more like a, uh, almost like a plant then. Well, I, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, you know, I do talk about this. Obviously, it's, it depends on the audience. But in, in many ways, I, I think our particularly our emerging new brain isn't really mammalian. That's why it's shrinking. It's 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 plant animal hybrid. You know, it's in the fact. Uh, I think I think one of the talks I did a while back was neocortex or phytocortex. You know, it, it, was this the production of the forest? Um, is it forest consciousness? You know, and, and it's eroding now, and it's in trouble, and it's collapsing, and it's turning back into a more mammalian system with all the wonderful things mammals do, like fight, hierarchy, da, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, oh, but yeah, I think I think that's what happened. And again, the data is good on this. It's not like I'm just making some stuff up because I like the idea. You know, we know that relationship was there. I mean, there's two, in my mind, there's two unusually unique aspects of humans and our and the known history, shall we say. One is we do have this long juvenile period, although it's shrinking. You know, it's shrinking. We've seen even in 100 years, that window where our brain develops is shrinking. Oh, my God, we should be really frightened about that. We're not. But anyway... Remember, I mean, kids are hitting uh, puberty a, a lot earlier in life now. All yeah. that's happening. It seems like the more flooded with AK knowledge and information we are, the younger we're hit with that information. Sure, we grow up to be smarter or function cognitively better to a sense, but you, you miss that childhood. You hear, right, childhood stars going, yeah, I never got to be a kid. That's And it's, it's so shrinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't even think we do function better. Again, I think that's part of our delusion. You know, it, it's all out of context. You, you cannot look at our culture and go, yeah, this bit's better. And just let's not look at the absolute disaster that's going on next door to it. You know, that's what we do. We compartmentalize it. It's part of the way our brain works now. But anyway, I think I think that was the mechanism. And again, anybody listening uh, can follow up. Uh, there's plenty of material on this because it's easy to go into loads of detail, and I'm happy to. But it, you know, it goes over a lot of people's heads initially. Um, anyway, that's all great. So you get this symbiotic uh, relationship that uh, causes a, a, a creates a juvenilizing environment. And remember, reproductive organs are juvenilizing environments you know the, the plant's reproductive system is all about the embryonic plants we call them seeds you know that's the that's what environment it evolved, it evolved for and it only expanded into fruit in response to symbiotic relationships you know plants don't produce fruit for nothing they do it in response to something in fact they're damn clever you know they they've targeted groups of whether it's insects for pollination as part of their sexual reproduction or bats or other mammals and primates of course and we've been roped into their sexual reproduction <laughs> as well as eating their bloody sex organs you know <laughs> it's uh, it's quite bizarre um but anyway the, the, the pharma the pharma Tony, you're just blowing my mind again, man. I'm, I'm going well, and then I'm, I'm listening to Dr. Jack Cruz's stuff about, you know, throw a, a blue tarp over a plant. What happens to it? The way we're responding is more like a plant. Um, the way our brains are functioning are more that way. They even have plants now that they found will change their scent of smell to warn other plants that animals are eating them. I mean, yeah, we're yeah, finding yeah. they communicate even. Yeah, now plant, plants are way smarter than people used to think. Uh, that is slowly coming out, and that's great. Um, and again. You know, you look at mammals putting humans in, in our... Sorry, Tony. <laughs> I left out a point. And the fact that they, too, have a very long, vulnerable juvenile period. 
when the plant is first blooming, you have to be careful how much water, how much light it has to be in that right spot to blossom properly. And it's vulnerable way longer than, say, uh, a giraffe on the Serengeti, right? I mean, as as we are for, for years without the parents, I just put a baby down. It's not going to make it. No, even though we're encouraged to do that, oh, let, let's put your baby primate in the room next door. Anyway, that's another story. Um, oh, yeah. So back to uh, back to the forest. Um, yeah, I mean mammals. You know, you can think of mammals as mammals essentially as parasitic because plants do all the cool stuff. They trap the sunlight, turn it into ten billion chemicals we've never even heard of yet, um, and do all sorts of cool stuff. They've got bigger genomes generally. They they produce more chemistry they're way more complex than, than animals mostly um you know and animals just hitch along for the ride they're the classic parasites you know and that's okay i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that um and symbiosis is a form of parasitism in many ways um so anyway we've got the symbiotic relationship um in fact the point i was making here so, so we have these juvenile traits and we still retain some of them into adulthood that's that's accepted as pretty unusual amongst humans some of our extinct relatives and, you know, some of the great apes, they have a long juvenile period and they retain some juvenile features into adulthood and quite long lived, which is also relative uh, relevant to all this because these hormones effectively, when we reach maturity, sexual maturity, that's when we start aging. You know, it's, that's when the clock starts ticking. You know, it's a trade off, right? In a juvenile stage, you're not really aging. You're in full kind of build mode, repair mode, when, you know, when you're a kid, you heal quicker, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Once you're sexual maturity, the clock's ticking and you've got so long to reproduce and that's pretty much it. Well, you know, again, I'm digressing, but you imagine you put all that on hold, you create a juvenile, a permanent juvenile environment. You're not going to get old in the same way. You know, you've got all this mythology about humans once living to God knows what stupid age and it's like, well, that must be rubbish. But actually, if we were held in a semi-juvenile stage, let's say, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of guessing a little bit, but typical, I don't know, early teen stage or something, where we're still in that juvenile stage, not fully mature, um, we're not aging in the classic understood way. Um, and this isn't about staying that side. You know, this is staying in the window. We'd still grow and develop. We probably have got a lot taller because our, you know, our joints would lengthen. That's when they lengthen in the juvenile phase and so on. But we wouldn't have aged in the same way. Anyway, I've gone off track, but I thought I'd mention that because people are interested. I don't think it's yeah. I'm beyond interested, man. The the idea though, I mean, I um, who was that? I can't remember who I had on. They talked about they interviewed uh, almost a thousand people on their deathbed. And on that deathbed, it was uh, two things. It was uh, I, I, I wish I had tried more of everything I wanted to try, which is very kid like behavior. Uh, and I wish I could have stayed younger longer. And people that are older even say, hey, it's young at heart. It's still listening to my music. It's still acting juvenile to a point to find life. And what man, Tony, I'm, I'm taking us further off left somewhere else. I can't help but think that. You know, I, I'm just, I only can speak for myself that when I begin to get trapped and to do what society tells me I'm supposed to do, uh, I feel like I lost myself for lack of a better terms, even more so. But then when I still continue to live the life by doing what I want to try, acting juvenile, if you will, right, still acting like a kid many times and not doing that, not only am I shunned by those that have grown up in quotes, 
but I feel an attack almost of that, that social construct of going mentally. I feel it. I feel it in anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms, right? Of going, hey, aren't I supposed to? Aren't I supposed to be doing this and, and have this and 401ks and health insurance? Mm-hmm. And it battles and you almost feel that battle and the symptoms that I call them anxiety, depression start to come out, man. Gee, I'm not going to be able to sleep for a week, Tony. <laughs> well, that, that's the cultural conditioning or the belief, you know, going back to beliefs where, uh, you know, where our maturing brain, asymmetric, asymmetrically maturing brain, so our left side of our brain's maturing more quickly and that equals dumbing down, turning into a stupid mammal more quickly. So it's losing the plasticity and those cultural beliefs that we're exposed to as kids, but we don't pay much attention to, you know, uh, and we're cajoled and pressured and pushed into boxes and made to do stuff we don't want to do. But as we mature, that kind of life experience becomes semi-solidified and that becomes our conditioned belief. And we then we start taking on the role of the oppressors that, you know, the, the generation moves on and we become the people doing the same bloody thing, more or less anyway. Um, so yeah, it's quite disturbing when you look at it like that. Um, yeah, but if if I can help you, you were, before I threw us way off, uh, you were talking about the, uh, symbiotic relationship that was developed from the forest, from the plants as we ingested it, developed our, uh, go ahead. Right. Okay. So we humans have these unusual juvenile traits. Okay. We'll put that to one side. It's very rare. It's very unusual. Lots written about it. In fact, people are trying to construct all-encompassing theories to explain our origins based on this neoteny is the technical term for juvenility, okay? So a lot of information on that already in the archives. The other piece that I wanted to, I just want to highlight these two odd pieces and why they've not been put together. Well, I kind of have an idea, but anyway. So the other thing is, and we've already touched on it, so I'll go through it quickly. If the date is good, again, humans and some of our relatives formed this symbiotic relationship with the reproductive organs of the flowering plants for tens of millions of years. So we're eating the sex organs. You know, it's kind of like oral sex every day, just to just to give it a little bit of spice sort of thing and make people think about it. And the trees respond, you know, they they that's where you can get fast track evolution. So that's what we're doing in the forest, eating eating the reproductive organs. Well, the trees want the seeds disseminated. So the trees that produce the best reward are gonna do well. We're gonna eat those fruit. And if if that fruit happens to have chemistry that makes us feel good, those trees are going to be sought after and quite rapidly you're going to have trees producing exactly what we need to feel good and to produce a more you know coherent neural system they're going to they're going to be successful it's going to be a very tight symbiotic relationship which is exact i think exactly what happened but anyway those two things if you think about them we, we we've got these this extended juvenile window we have these juvenile traits lots written on that we also had a symbiotic relationship with the juvenile juvenilizing reproductive organs of the flowering plants so those two things okay they're unique they're weird are they related you know oh my god are they related well you know you had all these guys and maybe some women as well i don't know it's going back 50s 60s 70s writing about neoteny juven juvenility why humans have these traits is it something to do with our big brain blah 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 lots of cool stuff but never quite coming up with a good mechanism and then you've got other people going, oh, yeah, look, we've got this evidence in our physiology. You know, we ate fruit. We lived in the forest for millions of years. Hang on a minute. You know, uh, isn't one isn't one theory the other side of the coin and vice versa? Because that's kind of all I'm saying with a little bit added in. You put these two theories together and it's like, oh, 
obviously it was a symbiotic relationship it created a juvenile environment that allowed our brain to proliferate more importantly than that it kept our brain juvenile so you get this fuck off big brain basically that's juvenile but when i say juvenile people have a lot of preconditioned ideas about what i mean so i'm not talking like we were stuck it as a six-year-old and we were running around the forest as little six-year-olds we're stuck in these windows for longer but when you think about juvenile windows they're quite active windows in terms of growth and development so let's say you stay for longer in the wind i don't know let's make this up you know between five and 15 instead of staying there for 10 years you stay there for 20 years you know you're going to have a very different outcome you're probably going to be taller you're going to have longer limbs you're going to have a much much bigger brain it's not going to be as mature that's what i think was going on and there's no magical mystery there you know this is basic basic physiology um and where we learn language it's where we learn the fastest when we're younger i mean it's you see from race car drivers that are 14 years old to golfers and fighters that once they start as a kid right they can process this information right mm -hmm. so we start feeding them information we're doing the reverse the faster we grow them up and the faster we teach them to conform if you will and or memorize and learn yeah. the actual more we are hindering that child from actually Absolutely. So when you're mentioning juvenile, what you're men mentioning really is our most prime state to learn, grow, function, create, imagine, yeah. uh, and understand. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think I think the forest, this symbiotic relationship, kept us in that state for a long, long time. Within that state, as I say, our own modified neuroendocrine system was was adding to that. So we so we were becoming more juvenile, bigger, ever bigger brain, and you know the, the data. Of course, the data may change because the, the fossil record is obviously pretty incomplete so far. But the evidence looks like, you know, a, an accelerating curve of expansion to build very expensive neural tissue. And what the hell is it for? I mean, the forest certainly is one of the most oh, relatively benign places. I'm talking about the deep forest here. And the reason for that is in deep, deep tropical forest up along the equator, is there's no grass. And what happens when you haven't got any grass? You haven't got any big herds eating the grass. Therefore, you haven't got 20, 30 different kinds of big predators eating the grass eaters. So in the deep forest, you haven't got a lot of predation. I'm not saying there's none at all, but there's not much. So if you need an environment to do this weird juvenile experiment, where, yeah, we're probably not as aggressive and we're probably not, you know, we probably would be vulnerable. I accept that. But if it's going to happen anywhere, Deep, deep in the non-seasonal forest is probably the only place it could happen. You know, it's it's like a protected environment where some weird kind of experiment can go on. And over, you know, two, three million years, we grow this colossal perceptual equipment. And it's not just the size, it's juvenile. Remember, it's highly plastic. It hasn't differentiated. It hasn't become rigid. It's running in real time, probably lighting up like a bloody light bulb. I, I, you know, I think the whole thing, you know, I'm, I'm again digressing. I think in, in its most juvenile form, instead of thinking about individual neurons and what do they do, I think the whole thing lit up like as if it was one neuron, and that's what gave us our weird ancestral edge. Because going back to the mythology, the mythology seems to talk about a radically different state where we were, we didn't perceive ourselves as individuals anymore. We were at war. Now, I know this sounds all very fluffy, and maybe it is, I don't know. But there's a tangible mechanism that could explain that, you know, where instead of instead of having a typical mammalian brain, where as we mature, we become more individual, we start being competitive. Yeah, we know all that. 
we stay in this juvenile state, this colossus things growing between our ears with a very different function than it has now, um, locked into this symbiotic relationship in the forest. You know, I, I think we're looking really, as I say, at a hybrid consciousness system that's probably more forest consciousness than mammalian consciousness because the weakness in all this is the forest. If, if your neural evolution, if this brand new juvenile brain was a byproduct of this symbiotic relationship and the forest ever disappears, oh my God, you're in trouble. You know, that, that's like taking away, you know, it's like taking away your life support system, at least for this advanced and unique neural system. Doesn't mean necessarily you won't survive as a species, although a lot of forest apes have disappeared from the fossil record. And even the bipeds, and you know, the evidence is built and built over the years, there were clearly bipeds in the forest, even though that's generally, oh, we went to the savannah and somehow we learned to walk, that's complete rubbish. Um, there were bipeds in the forest, but even the idea that we evolved on the savannah, it's kind of weird, I think, that if we evolved in that environment, why were we so unsuccessful? Most of the hominids died out. And there's evidence that even humans barely made it looking at genetic bottlenecks and all this kind of stuff. If that was our true environment, we should have been masters of it. Shouldn't have been a problem at all. But I think, you know, we were in the forest, this really weird protected environment. It created this kind of weird hybrid mammal plant thing with phenomenal capacity. And going back to the ancient traditions, all looking at the psychedelic research that's going on or the spiritual traditions, I think that neural system had the capacity for a kind of self-awareness that we've virtually lost now. You know, it's very difficult to see how you, the limits of your perception when you're in it. You just don't know. And you can be really certain that you know things until somebody tweaks your perception. You go, holy shit. <laughs> and that's the thing we're scared of changing, which, again, we'll get to. I hope that's what we need to change. But back in this state, I think we were we literally could perceive ourselves as what we really are. And by that, and I'm, I'm going to draw parallels with the modern scientific tradition. If you look at what biology, chemistry, physics, quantum physics, you know, lots of cool stuff going on there. What do they tell us about the cosmos? It's pretty weird, pretty mad, and inherently built on stuff that we don't even know what it is and the properties, you know, they, they just don't do as they're told. There's a certain degree of structure, but underneath the structures is swirling vortex of weird shit. <laughs> we don't know what it is. Um, and yet the traditions suggest, and people still get glimpses of today, that, that you can actually perceive what that is. You know, you can connect. You know, we, we ultimately even in re reductionist rational language, we're kind of an extrusion of the cosmos. You know, we're not separate. We might feel like we are, but we're not. You know, the cosmos is basically able to have this conversation through this equipment. That's what's going on. There's, there's no real, there's, there's nothing wrong with that idea. It's just not how we normally frame things. Um, but going back to this epoch, I, I think we had a, a system that instead of talking about it intellectually, so the concepts and the symbolism of what the cosmos is and the equations and all that cool stuff that we think is clever and might be helpful, we could actually feel what we were. And that's kind of being degraded. That's, that's somehow not to be trusted. Well, hang on, what's more advanced? A dry equation that tells you how two molecules interact, but we don't know what they're made of. We don't know anything about it, really. Well, actually, we can feel what we really are. And, oh, my God, it's profound and amazing. And you'd be happy to be in that state for the rest of eternity because it's so cool. It's like, oh my God, I can see what I am now. And that's kind of embedded in these traditions. And then people dip into that with whether it's meditation or drug use or occasionally spontaneously. And it totally trashes the rest of their normal life. Cause it's like, 
oh my god and everything else turns into the complete nonsense it is uh, anyway i'm kind of rambling again you know these conversations always end up in a bit of a ramble but um or that's what i think we had i think that was a product of the forest anyway then we get well forests particularly in africa talked about this on many occasions and the evidence is good for this genuine tropical forests and within the tropical forests is this non-seasonal niche this important niche where you can get fruit all year round then you get the seasonal forests, so that's not so important then the woodlands and savannah blah 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 in africa they are genuine tropical forests but the rainfall in africa isn't particularly proliferate proliferous it's not a lot of rain it's enough but it's kind of on the edge of what can make a tropical forest not as much as say the asian tropical forest or the south american tropical tropical forest so in big climatic cycles of climate or going a bit graham hancock here occasional major impacts that have big big impact on the climate that forest vulnerable um, and the pollen record suggests it can shrink a lot in these very dry epochs or disappear pretty much disappear except gallery forest along the rivers so if you're if your brand new cool intergalactic consciousness system <laughs> uh was really a product of the forest so it's a forest got clever borrowed some mammalian hardware and built something cool out of it instead of something stupid um and it's like oh my god now i know what i am then the forest disappears it, it doesn't mean it's going to collapse overnight but it's going to start cycling back it's going to start failing and you're going to start seeing the emergence again of this really all, all that's happening i'm going to try and pull this all together because I, 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 i'm terrible at digressing is instead of being locked in this juvenile state with this huge huge juvenile brain the brain starts to mature now you we've all grown up with the idea you were alluding to it before culturally oh well you need to grow up we need to you know become a man become an adult and that's a really good thing and in most instances i'm sure it is in most species but in our case that's the one thing that's killing us the fact that we're actually maturing and i don't mean that in a psychological sense there's a whole lot of contradictions and now i'm talking about our biology and particularly our neural system it's maturing and by that it's turning into a typical mature mammalian brain and that's where we're screwed because i don't have a problem with mammals they're amazing things but they don't seem to have this unique capacity for self-awareness introspection and we've almost lost it i think you know we've almost lost that we talk about it we don't really have it anymore we we, we you know if i if i wish to we would have a discussion we'd probably use labels like human being or a man or or i you know i'm, I'm doing a podcast what does it feel like to be human you know what, what do we feel well we don't feel much anymore you know unless we unless we make an effort or we get these strong emotions coming through from wherever or fear is quite a big one but and again unless you've unless you're really lucky the way your brain has matured that you've got a bit more access or unless you engage in certain practices or i'm going to call them treatments we don't feel a lot we mistake the concepts and the beliefs for reality we don't actually feel what it's like anymore even though we have perhaps the most amazing equipment for feeling what it's like between our ears we've kind of lost that capacity or should i be more clear one half of our brain has almost entirely lost that capacity the side that matures really quickly the side that's now in charge perceptually it doesn't have that capacity it's it's left with its conditioned ideas concepts or whatever that's been pulled through from its culture which varies a lot i mean one thing you can do with the left brain is you can train it and that's either very very bad what we're doing now 
training it to be more left brain, or as a stopgap potentially, you know, we can train it to be, we can train it to act as if it's not a left brain. We can train it to be more cooperative. We can train it, we can condition it with those ideas, which historically I think people were trying to do. You know, they were trying to make the best of a bad situation. You know, let let's let's have these apprenticeships where we keep the you know, we, we, we train our left brain to be open to expanded consciousness. We train it to do things that are culturally not accepted, but expected. You know, you, you, you work with a medicine man, you do this, you do that. You keep the bloody door open as long as you can. Well, we're, we do the opposite. We're trying to slam the, slam the trap door shut forever as early as possible, as quickly as possible, because we're terrified of anything else. And yet that's what's killing us. You know, it, it's, it's this side of the brain that hasn't matured as much, still has some of the plasticity, still has some of the childlike psychology, the cooperation, the empathy, the playfulness, all that kind of stuff. But it's kind of locked in the basement. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I, I'm sure it's not in the state it was as well. I'm not saying our left brain's bugger, our right brain's perfect. I, I don't think it's as good as that. I think both sides have taken a hit. Just one side's taken a hell of a hit. It's, it's matured that much more quickly. I think the other side still has some of this capacity, but thank God it does. And that's the start of our way out. And, and that's basically what all the ancient traditions are about. You know, they were, they were all about trying to get out of our stupid, and I mean that literally, our stupid ego mind. It's not bloody minded. It's just limited because it's matured too much. It's now, it's more like a typical mammal. And we can still get into the side that has some of this plasticity, this capacity, this sense of self that isn't about oh i'm a human being but it's like oh my god what am i because let's say i'm not saying i know what we are i don't think the ancient traditions say that it ever knew what it was it just knew it was fucking amazing you know that's that's all it knew it's like who gives a shit what i am it's just it's just cool you know in a very very deep sense um but yeah as, as, as that as that kind of process has unfolded um you know that that's i think that's basically where you see the emergence of symbolism even going back to the earliest cave art you know some people you know people i know who i respect their work but in some ways i think they've got it back to front i think the very first signs you see of symbolism from cave art onwards that's a sign of the system starting to fail why we'd have to externalize and and, and create um, abstractions of our experience if our experience was phenomenal and everybody was in the same state, you know, you, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. I, th I think it's the start of the beginning of things going downhill and yeah, it looks amazing. And we're all in awe of it and all this kind of stuff. And some of the stuff that's come out of those kind of indigenous cultures, but I still think we have it back to front. I think that's a sign of things going wrong. You know, it's, it's, a, it'd be a bit like two, two people experience people who've had really good, positive, let's say DMT experiences repeatedly they wouldn't then sit opposite each other and draw and do dmtr to exchange with each other what's the point of that there might be some point if you've never had an experience like that you can go oh my god that looks amazing you still don't get it really because that's what it feels like not what it looks like that's what you become but you wouldn't be doing that if you were perpetually in that state as was everyone else what, what what's the point of trying to you know you, you'd be locked into some kind of you know shared cosmic trip basically that you would never want to end uh, anyway digressed again there um but where are we up to 
Well, where where I the question that popped up in my mind as we talk about all that the the idea of you know being in this very kind of sheltered forest like environment this is where our brain if you if I don't know, maybe lack of better terms was birthed right the brain mm-hmm. that we have was birthed well literally um, I think it was yeah mm-hmm. yeah right and literally birthed in this um this well protected area if you will this shield mm-hmm. this garden if you will to reference well, the, the forest womb literally I mean literally. Right. And if we start from there, right, and this is where our brain and basically we, we have really just been either trying to hold on and maintain as a, a, whether we lost our environment. My question was, where did it go wrong? When and where did it go wrong from which I mean, I, from what I understood is when we lost our the forest interaction, this the symbiotic relationship with where we were basically born and brought up in and made from when we lost that and kind of walk walk me through that where it all started to go wrong. Mm. Well, I think there's three candidates have come to my mind. There may be others, you know, and again, I'm just exploring here. Things may change. But the obvious one is, as I've already said, the forest disappears. And there's evidence that that can and does happen. So that would be a pretty big problem. That's like, and remember, I'm focused a lot on the hormones. I think that's the key and unique aspect. But what you also got from the forest was this flood of antioxidants, um, flood of very protective chemical. Also, a lot of the chemicals in fruit, although they're not in the same league as, say, uh, psychedelics, they're mildly to moderately neuroactive. So going back to symbiosis, the forest was also providing the bulk of the neurochemistry. Today, we wouldn't call it neurochemistry because we think in reductionist terms, we think serotonin, dopamine, that's mammalian neurochemistry, agreed. But in a symbiotic organism, the stuff that's flooding through, you know, that, that shared environment, if it's neuroactive, that's your operating system. That's what you evolved with for millions of years. So that so you've got, you know, protection, you've got neurochemistry, Um, You've also got fuel, you know, the the brain and all the cells, but particularly the brain, it likes simple sugar. It's like it likes rocket fuel. Lo and behold, you know, what do the plants produce? They give it to the bees to take, you know, to pollinate. It's sweet. It's simple sugars. It's in the fruit. Same idea. So, so yeah, we, you know, we've got all that stuff going on. The forest disappears. We're in deep shit. Um, our brain's going to take a hit immediately because of the loss of protection, the loss of new chemistry. It's still going to work. It's just not going to work as well. The hormonal erosion is a much slower process. You know, that, that slow descent into back into a primitive mammal. Um, so that's one candidate. I think that's a pretty strong candidate. That probably has happened. In addition, and perhaps related in less extreme drying events where you get fragmentation of the forest, big chunks still stable, smaller chunks fragment and eventually disappear you can get episodes of that where some populations are safe some further out in the wet times are doing well the climate dries they get isolated that dries up so you get many versions of that going on and that's where i think you could then could then so it's so where you've got some lineages ending up in these more hostile environments and remember the forest given them a damn clever brain it's not that we're not clever enough to survive that's not why it emerged it wasn't honed because of survival skills. We just came out with a cool brain that can do shit, you know. Um, so we survive. But this this um, erosion, this slow reversion to type, which is the more accurate term, is happening. So I think there could be a threat to any population still in this hothouse environment where the brain's still expanding. Any early refugees from that that have ended up in hostile environments, the brain's starting to change um, and they're building it different all that. We could have, there could have been a threat 
from some of our relatives who left early, became a bit mad, became a bit aggressive, and then came back into the forest, there's a possible threat as well. And there's very tenuous parallels, I'd say, with bonobos and chimpanzees, you know, very tenuous. There's a big gap in timeline, but some parallels, I think. So say bonobos are more they're regarded as more juvenile than chimpanzees. Um, and chimpanzees, you know, they have they've been studied a lot more because they show human traits aggressive, they go to war, they do all that cool stuff that's supposed to be more advanced. They're evil. <laughs> okay, that's another way of putting it, yeah. Um, whereas bonobos, oh, and they, they use tools, so, you know, tools are all part of this. We have to use tools that made us clever. That was what was the bandwagon. Bonobos, um, more juvenile than chimpanzees. Um, and yet, in all the studies that have been done, they tend to show up as being much more intelligent, even though they typically don't use tools, so there's no driver for their intelligence. And then in the scant reports I've read, and I don't know how accurate they are, um, because they generally don't meet. There's a the Congo River, I think, typically separates them. But I have read now whether it's, it's some extreme end of that, or whether it's because of human interaction. Chimps have managed to, you know, people have taken chimps somewhere. But anyway, what I've read is um, that if chimps and bonobos meet, the chimps will kill the bonobos. So you see the analogy that if if you've got a very relatively benign environment, a relatively placid species, it's more interested in just being like oh my god this is amazing um and a, a distant ancestor that's fallen off the symbiotic wagon got brain problems they've turned a bit aggressive and they turn up in the forest it might not work out too well because typically that's what happens in more recent human history that you know the the more the more kind of gentle tribes if they existed tend to get trashed by the hordes that come over the hill looking for blood sort of thing so i think that's a, that's another potential area I, of course this is speculation i don't know but i could imagine that would have happened and it certainly has happened in some forms um and then on the last the last example would be simply where and i can't imagine why you do this if you're living somewhere where it's it's warm 24 7 this food falls off the trees 24 7 or you can you can climb and get it because humans you know, we, we people are focused on the bipedalism, fair enough. But humans are still incredibly arboreal. And I don't mean taking somebody from London or New York and saying, don't climb that tree. If you think about the best gymnasts or the best free rock climbers or, or, or whatever, and probably multiply that a bit, that's how good we would have been. You know, we were still very able in the forest, I think, in this epoch, um, not stuck on the floor as some people seem to think. But anyway, what I was getting to is, it, maybe it's possible that, that some groups or individuals thought, well, you know, what's outside the forest? Let's go and have a look and ended up in deep shit. I think that's unlikely, but it's not impossible. But I think the biggest the biggest factor is loss of the forest and then possibly some risk from more aggressive populations that have emerged in the meantime, because I, I don't think that goes very well as a rule. Yeah, to, to help set the, the scene, too, and the picture for everybody that's listening is you're talking about evolution over what millions of years here. And um, the idea that that we lived in this forest, this symbiotic, uh, and then some venture out, right? I mean, for me, I think the the comedian Louis C.K. said it best. He's like, hey, for he thought we were aliens. He joke jokingly says, and he says, if we're from here, uh, how come we need it just right and just perfect? If it's too cold, you know, we can't take it. If it's too hot, you know, we die. It's like we don't belong here. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that we had this brain that developed within the forest that became basically part mammal, part plant. 
and we evolved to live there perfectly where non-seasonal changes, eating the, the sugar-derived fruits, the seeds, etc. And let's say over these millions of years, right, certain different species are, are either out there already. And for a lot of people, too, that don't really understand when they think about Africa or the Nile, the origins of our history, they think about these desert lands. And truly, they were lush forests. They were um, they were just lush forests. They were that way. And and that had changed. And so the fact that some may had spread out, then it became competition. That's where I can see the Darwinism stepping in right now. With mm-hmm. the, oh, yeah. There's only a little bit of shelters, only a little bit of food to go around. Now the brain has to survive. Like you said, it's clever. It's going to figure out survival somehow. And mm-hmm. if I'm killing the other species or having to do that, then survival then continues. And so then we get this is where you're saying it starts to turn is when our forest goes away of what we're used to, where we start to live. And then the other species combats with us uh, when it becomes about survival. And this is the brain then that begins to develop and then evolve or what you may say, then de-evolve us up until now. Well, I I certainly think that would feed into the particularly the cultural approaches and where we've had to learn all sorts of skills to survive. You know, it's again, crude analogy would be like taking some hypothetical Zen master out of his you know, safe monastery and putting them on the savannah in Africa. And it's like, well, you can sit and meditate if you want, but you're going to get eaten, you know, so you've got to figure out how to survive. And you're going to turn into someone quite different just to survive. Um, but to be really clear, um, the start of this, what I call this descent. Tony, Tony, what are we doing now? What are we turning into just to survive in today's culture? Well, exactly. Exactly. You know. What are we turning into to a to quote survive to put food on the table to quotes provide? What is men and women are we turning into? How fast does our childhood go away? How grown up do we come be become now? Yes, brother, you have to turn into somebody different to survive. Somebody that you may not recognize, which is you get this huge emergence of who am I? The consciousness, the eating of uh, you know of, um, psilocybin, other things that wake you up to other paradigms. Asking these questions: Who am I? Are we all connected? You know, yes, we've had to turn into a a, a a mean species almost to to survive, man. And dude, just go on the road on Monday when everybody's going to work or coming home Friday or on a holiday weekend. We have turned into fuck you. Get out of my way. I'm taking my family to have a good time. <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't it's we have shit, man. Well, I, I, I think that's been massively exacerbated again, going back to conditions cultural beliefs we you know as our, as our left brain has matured become more mammalian like that was a problem although in some ways it's easier for the left brain to behave more like an aggressive mammal because it is a more aggressive mammal you know so there's that going into the equation but i think you start factoring in these cultural overlays where increasingly and particularly you know based on competition we we've in, we've created institutions that accelerate this process from our schooling system and our cultural systems, you know, to it accelerates this process. We've come up with concepts and beliefs like, uh, well, obviously, currently we're, we're in the middle of this. I, I don't even know how to describe it. This kind of uh, what, what are those characters? I'm no expert on this. The, the Ferengis from the start from Star Trek, you know, these these. We're encouraged to be obsessed about materialism and trading as if that's all that we could possibly ever experience. And that's all we'd ever want to experience. So we, we learn how to do that. We go out, we do that. And we, you know, once or twice a year, we, we go and, you know, uh, have a cruise around the ocean or something. And that's the whole of the human experience now, pretty much. And that's considered a success. It's like, oh, my, well, you've made it, you know. Oh, my God. You know, that, that, 
I, I, I don't have the words to express how horrendously is it something that, that is. Is it something we'd have to naturally create? I mean, uh, I used the example before. If you're in prison, you can change the mind frame of your life, but eventually you wake up and realize you're in prison one day, maybe, right? That you can reframe it all you want to about where you are, that maybe we're uh, one part of the brain is doing that to create it. So we either, I'm just going to say, so we don't kill ourselves, right? So we don't uh, murder each other. So we don't freak out, if you will, that it almost has to, it's a, it's a reverse wanting to help ourselves out, but it's a, this cognitive dissonance that we create, you know, this, this, mm. uh, it has to be like this because otherwise we're, we're bloody fucked. <laughs> mm. Well, a, again, going back to the point I made earlier, as I say, there's several avenues to explore in terms of how to turn this around. But, you know, we, again, we already know a lot about how to brainwash people, you know, look at advertising, how successful advertising is, Heinous, heinous industry, you know, encourages to buy. Basically, you know, essentially, our, our role is to destroy as much of the earth as we can. That's ultimately what it's about. You know, buy as much shit as you can, throw it away, buy some more shit, and all the consequences. That's pretty much the objective at the minute. Um, but fortunately, as I say, although it's a very dangerous area, um, because who's who's going to make the decisions and what are we going to do? But as I say, we can, I think, without fixing the underlying problem, we can we can train our stupid mammalian left brain to be very different. And we can do that very quickly. We'd start today, you know, instead of instead of schools teaching what they teach, we, you know, we could we could take a step back to I, I don't know what exactly, because um, I've not given it a huge amount of thought, but you know, more tribal conditions where you, you learn well, you learn about yourself, you learn about the, the ecology, and you learn how to look after your perceptual equipment and expand it as much as you can. That should be the priority with our kids. Fuck all the other stuff off. I mean, we, we might be able to pick one or two percent out of the mess we've created and say, well, actually, we can use this for something useful. But most of it's totally irrelevant. It's highly destructive. It's, it's going to kill us, even though we think it's not. But the point is, we, we could start today making different choices if there's enough motivation that's going back to the idea that okay can i make a case that we're brain damaged sounds horrible if i can then all but the most extremely deluded people are going to want to address that i'm not saying everybody will because that's how bad the delusion is but that pretty much would be the case i don't think there's many people would say okay it's pretty obvious we're brain damaged i want to stick with that and let's have some more of the same and even the few that do the ego, stupid ego mind, you know, uh, one thing it likes more than power and control pretty much is to like to be seen to be clever. It really doesn't like to be seen to be stupid. So you make an overwhelmingly powerful case. And even if it's like, ah, I like being a power control freak running the country or whatever, it it's still not going to put its hand up and say that if the overwhelming consensus is that's a symptom of brain damage, mate. You want to be moving towards fixing it. You know, you can put a lot of psychological pressure even where there's no inherent desire. You know, you can make it uncomfortable. So I think there's a lot to be done. We, we, we could basically start training our left brain to be less of a fucking idiot than it is and be open to things that are less idiotic. Not as a solution, but as a starting point, we could, we could do that tomorrow. But the really cool stuff, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, going back to basic neural configuration, if, as I suspect, we have, um, you know, a, a reverting and pretty dumb left hemisphere. It's more of a typical mammal now. 
and the relics of something cool in the right hemisphere, enough to make a big difference, certainly relative to a left hemisphere, quite a big difference. Again, we already know a lot of, of how to start safely making moderate steps. I'm not talking about, oh, well, let's all take, you know, 10 tabs of acid and do this, that, and the other. I mean, for some people, that's cool if that's what they want to do and it works. But I'm saying we can start at least beginning to build our brain from something that isn't pure shit. And we can start using the cornucopia of chemicals we already know a lot about to gently move us away from feeling fear and wanting to be in control and wanting to hurt people to feeling a bit more connected. And yet I know as I'm saying that, some people would be outraged at that idea, you know, and that's how fucked we are. It's like, hang on a minute, what am I actually saying here? I'm saying that we should safely and carefully, I'm not saying let's let's just jump madly into the pool of, you know, all the states of consciousness. Let's do this carefully based on what we already know. I, I'm pretty sure that 99% of people could find themselves in a radically better state within... 24 hours yeah it would take this utter humility of being able to look at oneself and state and break down those irrational illusions delusions that we well must build to survive to maintain it you know well it, it is a, it is a paradox you know as you say it, it kind of it, it's become self-perpetuating it's it's almost more comfortable to stay sat on the bus as it hurtles over the cliff and press the stop bell, let alone jump out the emergency exit. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, no, I'll just sit here because it's easier to do that than even press the bloody stop button, let alone it's like, okay, <laughs> take the driver out, stop the bloody bus, you know, but we're too scared to do that, even though we kind of know what's going on. So that that's where I think somehow, and I don't know what it is, I've got my own ideas and it could be complete bullshit, but I, I think we need a really powerful idea that even the rational ego mind can't run away from and as i say I've, I've been working with this idea that yeah humans have got a serious brain problem culturally some cultures it's much worse we've made it worse through our diet through our traditions whatever but all humans have this and remember the myths and the ancient traditions say this as well they don't say oh some people lost the plot and some people didn't it's it's universal in fact most traditions are several ages of man. You know, there's this ancient golden age where we're in a, a state that we can't even describe anymore. Let's put it like that. And then these crashes often, weirdly enough, linked with some kind of ecological catastrophe, interestingly enough. And somehow that shifted our perception. And one of the common themes that comes out of it, there is more detail. Some of the accounts are quite detailed, but the most common one is sliding into delusion. And we both probably know, we probably have a good definition of what delusion means, but that doesn't really help us to know whether we're actually deluded or not. We just understand the concept. Um, and yet all these traditions talk about that. And lo and behold, and this is what kind of, you know, we talk about being mind, mind blown in the early days when I was, when I was sort of picking up bits of, you know, I mean, there was not really any internet then. So I was going to libraries, reading bits and pieces. And I, I was, I, I was almost speechless for quite a long time where having found a little bit of information in these traditions and then looking in some of the neurological literature, it's like, oh my God, this is saying the same thing. Why, why aren't people jumping around and demanding this be looked at? That the orthodox literature on this subject says exactly the same thing, particularly our left hemisphere, our perceptually dominant left hemisphere. It's pretty much permanently deluded. 
and there's loads of papers written on it. You know, a lot of it came out of split brain research, and some people have tried to say, oh, well, these people had problems anyway, or it was cutting the corpus callosum that created this. Okay, that's a fair enough argument, but actually there's been analysis done of what we call normal people, and those traits are still there. They're just masked a bit more. You see it more when the, the, the hemispheres are allowed to do their own thing, the left hemisphere in particular. It's, it's basically a complete um, deluded idiot. And I've got one, and I know what mine's like. So I'm, I'm not saying this in a judgmental sense, other than I'm judging my own left hemisphere. It's 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 a bloody ball ache. It's always causing me problems. It's always caused problems. I don't think it does it intentionally. It just can't do anything else. It's pretty stupid. Um, and then somewhere deep in the you know recesses or whatever, this there's this other thread of stuff comes through, and my normal mind doesn't initially understand it. It's like it's like these downloads of ancient hieroglyphs or something. It's like, what on earth is that? And after weeks and months, I sort of decipher it into the language I'm using now. And it's usually pretty cool, you know? So it's it's like, that's the real life experience of it. Um, and I think speaking to a lot of people over the years, I don't think my experience is at all unique. You know, most people have that going on. If, if, they're, if they're pushing themselves a bit, I mean, a lot of people don't even bother. They just, you know, get up look at their phone, go to work, look at the phone some more, come home, look at the phone, go to bed. That's kind of it. You know, sadly, that's how bad things have got. But when you speak to people, they, they do recognize this uh, minor conflict that's going on, let's put it like that. Um, but, you know, again, back to that, that, that's in the literature. And that's as good a literature as you're going to get in the reductionist left brain world. And it's saying exactly the same thing. Now, there's lots of other pieces. You know, we've had a discussion before. There's lots more pieces I could put together, but those two should be enough. Our ancient ancestors, who we know didn't build their brains from junk food, probably had more antioxidants in there, basically probably had a better brain than we have, were warning us about this problem. And they were coming up with treatments, as I call them, not practices. Forget they were treatments, you know, meditation, yoga, taking certain plant chemicals, eating natural diet, what you know dance music anything to get away from that crazy thing that was starting to take over so we've got all that and then in the very modern literature oh my god delusion confabulation denial Is it, and, and yet of course that's not going to be enough because the condition's real <laughs> you know I, 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 in fact i've got a friend i spoke to him just recently and known him for years um you know from the kind of earliest days of this and he said you know if you're anywhere near the mark, or the more accurate you, you are with this, the harder it's going to be to get anybody to pay attention, not because there's no evidence, but because the condition's too far advanced. Now, I hope he's wrong. I really do hope he's wrong. But there's some, there's some weirdness in that, because if, forget my ideas, forget, you know, this discussion. You can find evidence of this all over. You know, you, you, the, these terms have become quite fashionable now, cognitive sort of dissonance and the Dunning-Kruger effect and all this kind of stuff but they've always been there you know it's not like it's not like suddenly we've got this we, we've had this for a long time and it's I think it's getting worse and yet we move forward as if you know even in the most conservative sense back to the point I made right at the beginning to, to my mind if there's any evidence at all even a one percent chance that our brain is a little bit compromised surely if we're saying we more or less put the brakes on and we figure that shit out, you know, and if it's a minor problem and a few people have it 
Great, fantastic. What happens if it's quite serious and we've all got it? What should we do? Oh, you know, should we even be doing this interview? Should be out in the street saying, fucking shut the fuck up. There's something seriously wrong here. Oh, I know. I'll just get in my car, go to work, buy some more shit. I, you know, I, I obviously it's easy to, easy to kind of make those kind of comments, but it does feel like that. Yeah. But again, we'd need the brain to tell on itself, right? We'd well, study, the brain would have to tell on itself about what's happening uh, and, and how we're just walking blindly into it. I mean, Dude, it, you're, you're, you're right. You're right. And I think I think some people do see that the more sensitive or the more the people who still have inherently if they're, they're lucky or they've done certain things. They have more of that connection. We, we've had those people all throughout history screaming at us, telling us we're nuts and it's all going to shit. OK, and that clearly hasn't worked. But what I think might be possible, trying to use the dysfunction in an advantageous way, because, you know, talking about beliefs and conditioning and um, data and so on, I think. Again, you've still got to make the case to even bother looking, and that's going to be hard enough. But if you forget the conclusions, forget my conclusions, forget anybody's conclusions, but just look at all the big pieces around human origins, neural function, whatever. Just look at them all with new eyes, and what do they tell you? And if you've got a little bit of reading in some of those areas, Really, it doesn't paint a very good picture. It's not saying, oh, yeah, yeah, pretty clearly we're advancing and we're getting clever and our brain's getting more functional. It's saying exactly the opposite. But so many of those areas have been looked at re in reduction of sense and the conclusions have been written. I mean, I, I found it fascinating going back to those papers on left hemisphere, um, you know, the split brain research, which some people have tried to kick into touch in recent years a bit, saying it's not that valid or I think they're completely wrong. Um, but you, you have papers where I, I, I think the best example is Michael Gazaniga. I do pick on him a bit. And he's still involved in this kind of work. But he was one of the early pioneers in split brain research. And his conclusions and Roger Sperry and others were, were, were along these lines. That basically our left brain dominates our day to day perception. OK, our sense of who and what we are. Some things it's not very good at, and some things it doesn't do at all. Some people talk about the right brain, brain being more emotionally dominant. And I think there's some truth to that, although not with fear. I think that's mostly left brain. But anyway, Gazanica and others concluded left brain's perceptually dominant. Okay. And he's got one, remember? Well, he never says this in these papers. Then he goes on about all these traits it has. So the traits I've already said, like confabulation, it, it lies all the time and doesn't even know it's lying. We see it in other people. We don't see it in ourselves. Of course, they're seeing exactly the same thing in us. It's deluded. It has no idea of what it is or what's going on. And it, it I mean, the classic examples would be um, in patients who've had a, a serious stroke, okay? And they can no longer use one side of their body. Um, let's say they've had a, a right hemisphere stroke. So they can, you know, there's, there's only the, right side of the body working reasonably well. So you can, and these are case studies, and I mean, they're, they're quite extreme, but they illustrate the point. Uh, so you ask the left brain, what's going on? Why can't you use your left hand today? And it will come up with a story. It's like, oh, I'm tired, or oh, I can't move. You know, it, it doesn't deal with reality at all. Now, these are extreme scenarios, I accept that. But like I said earlier, all these traits are there. They're just a bit more diluted when the two hemisphere, you know, when the right hemisphere hides that extreme dysfunction. But it's still pretty extreme. 
So these guys are writing these papers, there's delusion, there's denial, there's confabulation, there's a whole bunch of others. Anastagnosia is another fancy term where it's a term that describes an inability to perceive one's dysfunction. So that's kind of really what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. And that's an endemic trait of the left hemisphere. It has no idea of how messed up it is when it's messed up. Okay. So they're writing this paper. We've all got this. They've got this. And what happens? They write it all up and it's within the guise of specialized adaptation. Well, this must be the left hemisphere must have been specialized for this. It must have gone in this direction for specialized reasons. And even to the point where some of these researchers, and I, I highlight this in talks, have said, oh, well, you know, like Gazaniga, he was almost uh, not humiliating, but sort of making a bit of a joke at the expense of one of the split brain patients because of the conflict that was going on when they were doing this research. Uh, there's some clips, I'll have to send you a clip and you'll see. I mean, it's from the 60s, it's not new stuff, it's fantastic stuff. Um, so kind of almost deriding what was going on. And then in discussion with the interviewer, whoever it was, talking about how don't leave home without your left brain. Basically, it served us very well. And these are the people doing the research. So what chance have we got by the time it's gone through the papers and the universities and it's in the Scientific American and then it's in, you know, Vogue magazine? We believe this stuff because they've told us. But they've not factored in their own data into their own bloody perception. <laughs> in my opinion. I have and please, laugh. anybody listening to this, go and check it out. I'm not making this stuff up, you know. I'm really not. It's there. You can go and watch the YouTube clips. You can watch the summaries. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, these guys were pioneers and they did some cool stuff. Hang on. Forget the conclusions. Look at their data. I think their data is good. I think their data is good. But be wary of their conclusions. Their own data says be wary of their conclusions. They just don't say it. It's just kind of, anyway, you know, I think, I think it's, you know, if you, if you want to look at the core of it, that's the core of it. You can build this big complex picture around it, but that's the core of it. Well, I like what you've done, Tony, uh, similar to, uh, to your book left in the dark. You've certainly done that here live, uh, as I've watched you fade into the dark. Um, <laughs> but well, there's hope, with, yeah, there's hope to which you speak about even Dr. Andrew Hill, um, who I had on a, a neurologist who I had on talks about, you know, the brain and its plasticity, its ability to change given the right stimulants, environments, et cetera, uh, that there's still hope there. And also what, what I, I like that you have done is, is not only talked about these, uh, these theories, et cetera, but you've begin to shape it using the scientific data of today. And all the people that are listening can go to, to, to your information and see how you've built that on neurology. You've built it on biology. You've taken into account all of those influences, if you will, to back up what you're saying here and pull data from all different areas, specialities, and everything to conclude this, that this isn't simply, um, well, just Tony and his wild theory after a night of acid. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's something you've pulled together scientifically and and is try and as i love the route you're trying to take is like fine if you won't listen to the obvious does right in front of you that you even yourself know personally then perhaps i can convey a scientific method in quotes if you will that will then convince that rational part of you that hey we should at least take a look at this mm, absolutely yeah well if like I, you know in the early days because I, I i didn't set out to do with this and i you know got a pretty basic sort of um background and 
grew up in a, an environment where this kind of thing wasn't encouraged at all. You know, uh, I, I, I think my first job was a laboring job, and that's probably how I would have spent the rest of my life, were it not for certain accidents along the way. Um, I'm not sure what I was going to say there. I was going to say something about lost it. <laughs> I tell you what, you, you said about being in my head. I, I've usually got about you know 500 windows open. And I can't bloody find them. Um, it won't matter. Damn, damn. That's it? why we. That's why we call it the cognitive rampage, bro. That's why yeah, we... it, it, it might come back anyway. Um, but yeah, just back to basics. And I've said this two or three times. But if people want a, a distilled idea of what I'm saying, basically symbiotic relationship. We grew an increasingly juvenile brain that had phenomenal new properties. You can think of it as half mammal, half forest, or even more than half forest. Lose the forest, and what happens? It's a process called reversion to type. It's a, you know, it's a technical term. Means that in symbiotic relationships, if you take one half of the symbi symbiosis away, the other half will start reverting, or at least anything that's emerged as a as a result of the symbiosis will erode away because it can't be sustained it, it could only be a product of the symbiosis it's called um you know emergent structure and emergent function that's what i think a neocortex was um and still is and you're going on about plasticity like i said i don't want to give the impression this is all doom and gloom i think it's necessary to get to the core of the problem and i think it's really really bad i think we're in even more trouble than we think we are and that's pretty horrendous but if there's a neurological cause that's where it's exciting we can we can reverse this process and we can also we can already make quite big steps without fixing it all we can already shift the balance of hemispheric dominance we can ameliorate our neurochemistry with with a few chemicals we know a lot about that are going to help us bearing in mind you know um, people get all worried about drugs our ancestors must have been ingesting 10,000 drugs a day i don't know what the hell they were you know every day that's that was the normal operating system that's what this thing needs to run on it, it doesn't need just dopamine and serotonin it needs a thousand or ten thousand other plant chemicals to run properly and yet we're like oh drugs that's bad this is probably the most drug hungry machine that's ever emerged because of the environment it emerged in you know if you think trees trees uh make thousands of chemicals any individual species in fact mo most people are pretty aware that the tropical forests, the, the molecular ecology of the tropical forests is off the scale. You know, okay. one tree will make more. That's where all of our antibiotics came from. Yeah, yeah. one tree will make more chemicals than the combined pharmaceutical industry easily. By the way, many, many trees all pumping their chemical know-how into an environment that was evolved to be eaten. Tell me where you get that. Here's your free lunch. Take this away, man. I want you to have it. Not if you take this, I'll bite your head off, you know, or poison you or whatever. Yeah. So all that stuff's pumping in. Well, that was that was the operating environment of the symbiotic brain. That's what it needed to work normally. It's, and it's, here we are, defend, defending our current configuration, built from junk, and we're not allowed to alter it at all, and that's going to work. Well, actually, current configuration equals obvious insanity. At the very least, we should be trying some different configurations. If we fuck it up, well, I don't think it's going to make much difference. But I think we actually know a lot about how to not fuck it up, you know? If we can only believe that we're fucking it up. But there you are. There, there's the conundrum. Uh, there's the conundrum. And, and uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it isn't possible to 
I love you how know, all of our scientific knowledge and research right there have, has been boiled down to, can we believe we're fucking it up enough to think that we can change the fucking up? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's 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 the kind of journey I found myself on. Like I said, I didn't set out to find it. And I, you know, uh, as I say we talked before, I don't consider myself a natural communicator. I've had to work very hard with my Aspie male traits to even stand up in front of 20 people and say three words. You know, that was a bloody nightmare years ago. And um, even this kind of stuff, it's, you know, I'm finding it easier as time goes on. But it's one thing to have that kind of Aspie brain where you can see weird shit, but trying to pull it through so even you can understand it, let alone then try and communicate it. That's one, you know, for me, that's incredibly challenging and very frustrating because I see many gifted communicators out there. So I'm hoping that in time, you know, if, if this has some validity, people who are better communicators than me can run with this you know this is maybe what is is needed well perhaps that's the symbiosis that's is, that is necessary those that have developed to spread a message and spread that message well mixed with those that can see a uh, maybe life or operating system as a whole that may uh you know I've, I've said that often is that all of us are the same we're all like players on a video game some of us have this much strength this much agility this we all just kind of born the, the the same equal but just some in higher traits than others right and if we could learn to work together there's two two points in, in all our in our discussion that uh kept hitting me just kind of like wow just almost reinforcing it a is this uh, incessant need uh that perhaps the brain had back then for mood modulation because we were in a constant uh modulating um well environment our brain was was mood modulating all the time right i mean i i've referenced how uh kids mood modulate you know uncle throw me up in the air you know spin around in circles right spin me again spin me again we love the modulation we love moderating or modulating that mood so much and our brain like you said was born in this environment of doing so but and yet we now it still ticks but differently now we just now clog it with a whole bunch of knowledge competence or information we stare at a phone right we're fed all of this information constantly to where a part of that brain still exists we're just feeding it the wrong fuel and the set the second point being uh tons of this study on the idea of flow state right this this idea of reaching flow state for some sort of healing property as well stephen kotler's been on uh the rise of superman author of that and, and you know uh, that has intrigued me for a while. What we've learned is the more in the flow that we go, the less our brain functions, the more it turns off. But I was thinking about that as we were talking and as if it's this good thing, right, that, you know, when we're skiing down a mountain at 90 miles an hour, we're uh, freestyling poetry, right? We're learning that freestyle artists, right, painters, et cetera, all these, when they're in that flow state, the brain shuts down and shuts off. But then I also thought, well, how vulnerable of a state are we in? To, to for that to happen because i know when i'm just going off in poetry and just trying to spit i know scientifically my brain functions less and shuts down but i become vulnerable i don't look around what's going around me you know somebody could sneak up on me right i'm not i'm i'm barely present you know i'm barely present in what i'm doing and in more flow state we forget we don't have memory about what happened and it, it almost is this stupefied state that we become in the more the brain shuts off um, but I, I don't know from a reset standpoint, you know, a lot of people, even myself talk about psilocybin being reset buttons, right. They kind of at least wake you up to this consciousness in quotes, new, new plateaus, new areas for just a moment that that flow state maybe shuts the brain down enough to where we aren't thinking with, 
uh, that right side of the brain, right? Or maybe the left side, maybe it's shutting it all down, getting back to whatever is basic in human because we are creating or experiencing as humans at that time in flow and how our brain functions less. And the more we experience those states with the more we try to return to those states as if we're almost happy to shut that thing off to a point um, as if we know it's messed up, right? We're looking to, to reset it, shut it off, do something as if instinctually almost, we know that it's not functioning properly or at least maybe how it should. Mm. Well, it, the, the terms that come out a lot of these traditions like waking up or liberation, I think there's a lot of truth to them. Um, and you, I mean, you mentioned, I think you mentioned downhill skiing, I think, or something like that, because I, I know people have been experimenting with microdosing LSD and doing all sorts of extreme sports and so on. And I think what you're talking about, that semi-disconnected, stupefied state, I think that is a real state. And, and if that's all there was, that would be worrying. But I, I, I think really what's going on there is, yeah, our rational minds got out of the way a bit. But this thing we're trying to access, um, for all that I think its potential is enormous, first of all, it spent most of its life locked in the basement. It doesn't know what it is anymore. Um, it's still built from poor quality materials. It doesn't have the chemistry it really needs to run on. Because if you think relative to our ancestral past and the forest environment, we are the most chronically neurochemically deficient species has ever been in our current state. If we had thousands of chemicals going in all the time, then what we have today is chronic drug deficiency, literally, for this thing to work. And I'm not talking about, you know, um, dysfunctional drugs. I'm not talking about crack or whatever. I'm talking about drugs that make this thing work, all the all the background plant chemicals, whatever. Um, so, so I, I think it's be wary of judging it when it's it's barely waking up from a coma, you know. Because I think when you get it to wake up a bit more, it's it's not just capable; it's beyond capable. It's it's the difference between that semi soporific meditative state you might get a glimpse of when you start out. And a hypothetical, you know, obviously very hypothetical sort of Shaolin monk who's woken the thing up and they're still calm and they might not look like they're paying any attention. You know, and I know this is a bit Hollywood-esque or maybe not, I don't know. But, you know, their awareness is off the scale of anything we normally perceive. Their abilities are off the scale that you might not realize that. But that's what's coming out of these extreme sports where people are taking these things, I think, to shift their dominance a bit more. I mean, there's a paper, I've been having some discussion with somebody recently, uh, there's a paper from, I think, about 1965. Um, and So remember, the two hemispheres are genetically asymmetric, but hormones can make them either symmetric by not reading the DNA or very asymmetric by reading the DNA. That's the kind of plot. Um, and in doing so, you're going to get different chemical responses, all sorts of stuff. There was an experiment done in the 1960s. I thought I was quite shocked when I came across it. It was really cool, really weird, um, because it, to me it shone a lot of light on why people take certain classes of compounds. Um, there's a, a neurosurgeon in London, I think, and he had a bunch of patients. I think there were probably epilepsy patients, and at that time one of the treatments was to do lobectomies, even hemispherectomies, to stop the propagation of epilepsy and all this kind of stuff, you know, where, wherever the problem was. I think that's the basic plot anyway. Um, and this was at a time when LSD was still legal. So how he got this into his head, I don't know. He, maybe he was taking LSD. But he thought it'd be really cool to give 
Um, oh, oh, all right, so some patients had left hemisphere lesions, some patients had right hemisphere lesions. So I'm just trying to set the scene here. So you decided, okay, let's give all the patients a trip before the surgery. Then we'll do the surgery. And then sometime after they recovered, give them another trip. I mean, if that's not weird, I don't know what is. This is 1960s, you know, at a, at a, a mainstream hospital in London. So that's more or less what happened. And in the short version, or the short kind of, uh, somebody that comes out of that is that the patients who had their right hemisphere removed or significant portion of their right hemisphere removed didn't have the typical responses to LSD anymore. So this, the inference, a strong inference, and some people have gone further than that and concluded that typical LSD response is a right hemisphere. Now, that would make a lot of sense to me. That's a hemisphere that still has some of this expansive capacity. Now, remember, you drop acid for the first time in your life and your diet shit and your right hemisphere has never been out there. It's not still not going to work very well, but it's going to light up a bit. And that's kind of what happens, I think. But if you extrapolate from that and you look at the traditions of um, so-called expansive drugs, the, the psychedelics, they're really chemicals that asymmetrically stimulate the right hemisphere. So left hemisphere can't make use of them anymore. It's it, it's it's too limited in its function. It's It's like... What's it like? I, I don't know. It's like DOS versus Windows 10 or something. You know, it just doesn't have the function. You could poke it, prod it. You can feed it on fruit or feed it on McDonald's. It's not going to behave that much differently because it's it's limited by its structure now. The hormones have turned it into a very primitive structure. So you're not going to get any change out of that. Whereas the right hemisphere still has a bit of this plasticity and can still operate if it's got the chemicals. Well, mostly it doesn't get the complex chemicals from plants. And it's got the left hemisphere kind of keeping its boot on it. It's got it locked in the basement. So some of these unusual chemicals that stimulate the now asymmetric hemispheres, at one time they were more symmetric, that differentially stimulate the right hemisphere, that's why they've been, you know, that's why they've been found. So your DMTs, your, your um, peyotes, your LSD, whatever, they kick the right hemisphere into life a bit. And that's what people have, you know, and there's obviously a resurgence in the in the research and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, people are thinking, oh, psychedelics are the answer. And well, I, I don't buy that at all. I think they've got a role to play. But you're still basically putting giant jump leads on a half-dead car, banging a lot of current through. You go, oh, wow, it's turned over. It's working. Ah, you know, you're getting a bit of life out of it. And the difference between the two is shocking. I agree. Oh, my God. But that's still, I think, it's more a measure of how much we've crashed that we think these states are fully functional. They're not, you know. They're to me, they're they're like, um, you know, it, it, it's it's like some Frankenstein movie where we've animated the corpse briefly and it's staggering around doing things it's not done for a long time. Then it wears off and it just collapses again, <laughs> you know. And that that's not how it was supposed to work. It was supposed to work real time, full time on these complex plant chemicals, um, not need these supercharged, highly targeted chemicals. Like I say, I think they've got a role to play in our restoration um, and certainly is a, a quick way of reversing dominance. But we're not deficient in LSD historically. We're not deficient in peyote. That, those things weren't there in the forest. And the myths don't suggest we needed these chemicals. They came in later as treatments, in my opinion. Oh, my. Anyway, God. there's another digression. I don't know where we are for time. Are we doing okay? Or, oh, oh, my what? God. It's we're two, <laughs> we're two hours and 10 minutes in it doesn't matter man I, uh, okay the, the fact that it you know if we could even imagine if you if anyone's ever you know done a, a psilocybin or, 
or a psychedelic of experience that we didn't need that or we just stayed in that state of visual of understanding other uh, dimensions if you will in quotes if we walked just in that in real time as you referred to I, I think that blows most people's minds away that how would i even be able to function like that or perhaps it's the medicine that's treating at least the only savable side um there's even histories uh, or books talking about ah, i should remember the gentleman's name who uh uh took the psychedelic uh these psychedelics over to monks and people that have been meditating for so long up on a hillside etc and to where uh they took them and basically were like Hey, I, I get it. I, I get, but I'm in that state all the time. I, I, I'm already in the room, I think is how the, the literature refers to it, right? Is that he talks about, oh, I'm, I'm in the room already where mm -hmm. the psychedelics kind of bring you in the room for a minute or light up the room for a second. Then you leave, yep. you know, those, those things come and go pretty quickly. And like you said, if they were around anyway, it was just part of mood modulation that was just there anyway, perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, you know, giving us that, that one time clear, you know, the, where we think, oh my God. I know I've I've done tons of psychedelics and, you know, I uh, laughingly I come out and say the two things I say, God is real. Religion is bullshit. And, <laughs> and I kind of come out of it. And but I even these other profound thoughts and experiences even begin to fade away. They, they don't last. You know, they, I'm not staying in that state. The, the constructs take back over. Right. The mm -hmm. of what I must become, how I must perform, begin to take over. And we lose that so quickly, man. Well, it's it, it's classic reductionist, isn't it? You know, it's if, for all it's the, it's the psychedelic end of things, and you'd like to think there was more integrated thinking, not so much. You know, it's still very reductionist, and uh, I mean, you know, we we talked a bit, and we talked about all these disciplines and trying to bring them all together. We've got to remember, we've made these disciplines up. There aren't really disciplines. There's only the the one thingness. That's all I'm looking at. And we've invented all this other shit like neurology, psychology, pharmacology. That doesn't exist. There's a, there's a singular thing. What the hell it is, I don't know. You know, maybe it never knew what it was. Um, but it's worth remembering that, you know? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. I think that's worth. Let's wrap that up right there, man. My God. That's enough mind blown, man. I'm not going to sleep for a week now, too. On <laughs> I mean, people, you're right. We make this shit up to call it something. So hopefully we can study it right and, and maybe learn from it. You know, we define mm -hmm. stress as being a thing. Thus, maybe we create it because we've defined it as a thing. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, all these specialities that we study and we, well, we got to call it something so we can study it. So yeah. uh, let, well, that's it. It's, it's like our brain and our perception and our traditions and our academic role. It's locked in a hall of mirrors. And it's, it's not that we can't pick some things out and start finding a direction. But the idea that we really have any idea what we're doing to me is grossly exaggerated. You know, um, it's in fact, that's been generous. I think, you know, we, we, we really are lost. Um, but I am hopeful, like I say, I think if, if, if there is a serious neurological problem to me, that's the best out we've got. If there isn't a problem, I'm actually more worried, <laughs> if that makes sense. Because um, I, I have no idea what's going on or what to do. If there's a neurological problem, common sense, if I've got any at all, it's like, well, okay, you fix that first and worry about the other stuff later. Surely, you know. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, I, I hope that's been a, a little bit of an introduction. As, as you say, there's so many avenues we could go down, uh, probably for hours and hours. Um, but there is material out there. I've compiled what I think is important stuff so far. Um, obviously, there's lots of other people working in different areas as there would be. But if, if you, if you, 
as I say, if you try and step back and look at the whole landscape, try not to get too tied up with the conclusions, including my conclusions, and just look at what the landscape's saying. Um, you know, are we highly advanced or is there a serious problem? I, I think it's pretty obvious, but. And, well, and, and beware, right? The devil's in the details, as they say in some cliche. <laughs> yeah. We focus on the details. We don't really see the whole landscape, man. Well, I, I, I think the detail has its place. But if you haven't got the landscape, you haven't got the context, you're wasting your time with details. There's no effort to fit in. you know. And, and, and going right back to the beginning, despite my best efforts, I think at some level this is quite simple. Uh, that's the struggle I'm working with, trying to make it more simple, trying to talk about... Yeah, symbiosis, juvenile brain, loser symbiosis, brain matures asymmetrically, one side's overly mature, it's really stupid, there you are. That's pretty much it. Bam. I, and for me, I hear that and go, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense to me. But uh, but then again, I'd have to change everything I believe, everything I know. I would have to bury my own ego about how wonderful the human species is, and aren't we great that we made a cell phone uh, and, and made internet. Well, the, the other the other possible thing is to try and sell it as a phenomenal thing, which it is. I mean, let's face it, people who slip into or induce by whatever means or whatever tradition deeper so-called altered states, even though I think this is the altered state. But anyway, oh. um, they, they don't come back from those altered states typically going, yeah, you know, it was all right, but I'd rather go ride on a roller coaster or watch TV. It's typically... There's lack of language, lack of superlatives. It's just fucking beyond amazing. Now, if we can't package that up and get the advertisers on board and sell that to the left brain, it's like, well, do you want to be stupid brain damage or do you want to have the cosmic ride of your life for the whole of your life? You know, make that decision. Uh, maybe it's a decision that I don't understand, but I know which, I know which uh, kind of route I would like to go if I had the opportunity um so so it should be possible and you know i mean that that's a bit overarching but you can look at for example savant skills where the evidence exists and, and this is an easier sell i think to the left brain because it likes mechanical stuff and maths and control stuff so you say well you could be a savant math skills you can have savant painting skills you can have perfect pitch you know you can package it up in a reduction of swain say you can have all these things of course in reaching for those things it's the very thing that gets taken out of the picture, but that doesn't matter because by the time you get there, it won't matter anyway. You go, oh, holy shit, I don't want to go back there. But you can sell the idea to the left brain. It's like, yeah, you strive for these things. They're on offer. Just take the magic pill and you'll have them. And you will, except you won't be there anymore. You'll be in the basement where you belong until you're fixed. Let's, let's be compassionate. I'm, I'm not about, you know, killing the left hemisphere. I want to repair it. But in the meantime, it's too dangerous to be in charge. You know, it, it, there's analogies with with what's going on in the world of politics, politics today. I won't say the name because it's too much overly used. But, you know, at the very least, until we figure out what's going on, we shouldn't let the least functional people run the show. You know, fucking thank you. And yet and yet here we are. So what What on earth? You know, I, it can't be that hard of a sell to say there's brain damage if that's what we've got going on. Surely it's it's there's not a huge leap. Uh, maybe there is. I don't know. Oh, man, we all want it to be more complicated than it is because then we won't have to do anything about it right away. Mm. Cool. Well, uh, I, I hope that's made a little bit of sense. Um, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to plug anything. Um, I've got a I've just set up a Patreon page because I've, I've actually been tied up with a lot of stuff for years. And I'm, it's only literally this month where I've 
got some real time on my hands to start working on these projects again. So um, I'm hoping to get a little bit of support along the way as well, which I have already. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping to basically put a new distillation together with new books and new material and even looking at producing some academic papers. Um, but at the minute, I've got a Patreon page, which I'm going to use as my hub, you know, for new stuff. Um, so that's Tony Wright on Patreon. I think I've used Children of the Forest as the title. But if anybody wants to go there, and um, at the very least, that's where I'll be posting things over the next few months and years. Um, but any support, greatly appreciated, because while thinking about this stuff isn't so difficult, actually trying to get stuff done and work with people and collaborate and pay people, that's not so easy. So. Yeah, please, everybody, check out the Patreon page, Children of the Forest, um, with Tony Wright. And that's uh, Tony Wright with a W, in case uh, you're just spelling right. Even though I think you are right, Tony, um, scarily right uh, on a lot of aspects, man. And uh, thank you again. Uh, and your, your books again for everybody uh, where they can pick them up at? Um, originally Left in the Dark, but to be very clear, um, that was picked up by a publisher a couple of years ago. And it was retitled Return to the Brain of Eden wasn't so keen on the title but there we have it so it's essentially the same book um so you can still get return to the brain of eden and i still think it's a reasonably good framework i mean i'm hoping to build on that and put something that's more coherent together but it, it still has all the main pieces there and i think they're more or less in the right place but there's certainly scope for a bit of polishing i guess um but that book's still available on amazon or wherever uh, so that's return to the brain of eden all right. And Tony, thank you again for um, blowing my mind and again about 45 times and now not allowing me to sleep for the next, uh, I don't know, month. Now. Uh, <laughs> well, remember, sleep deprivation is an ancient tradition used by people to tie the left hemisphere out because it's got weak batteries and allows the, the right hemisphere to come through. It's not easy. It's not recommended for most people, but that's why people get into altered states when they stay awake for a long time. Okay, now I'm going to have to stay away. <laughs> Good God. I'm, I'm glad we spread these out a year or two, man. My God, but you are welcome anytime to this show. When you, you find a, a, a breakthrough, you're sitting there in the park one day and go, oh, yeah, another connection to add to this that we can help uh, You know, put this. Uh, I hate to even call it a theory because a theory implies there has uh, not much factual evidence behind it, although yours does, in my opinion. Uh, but you're welcome anytime here. And thank you so much, Tony, for uh, one rescheduling with me and, and doing it again so soon um, after a little, little mishap last week. But but thank you again for coming on, Tony. Well, thanks for the invite. And, uh, you know, great to chat. And I, I hope I hope uh, it makes sense to some of your listeners anyway. And yeah, sure. Uh, if, if anything of interest comes up, I'll get in touch and we'll see how it goes. All right, brother. Take care, man. All right. Thanks. See you again. Bye. Bye.